Shabbat Shalom, Hebrews and Shebrews. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. That's Noel, not Noah. Nor is it Noel, despite the day this happens to be. Of course, this is the Unexpected Cosmology. I am um, really looking forward to this presentation that I'm about to give tonight. This has been a long time coming, and I really a year in the making. And I realized from the very beginning that I need to qualify the two separate uh, audiences that this is directed to. Really, well, we'll throw in the, the whole uh, Nephilim audience, too. That would be a third. But I've realized that a lot of people, they will watch one of my random videos on YouTube, and they will have a bunch of preconceived notions about eschatology or biblical doctrine or this or that, and they will hear me say things, and they will be completely confused, and they will be like, what in the world are you talking about? This is, I had one guy commenting on my 7,000-year timeline deception. He said, uh, this is the worst eschatology I have ever heard. And I don't think he had any idea that I was talking about uh, the idea that the millennial kingdom um, has physically happen on this earth. And I always have to qualify because people will say, but no, the kingdom is forever. Well, the kingdom is forever. The kingdom has always been here. The, the kingdom of heaven is older than this earth. We're talking about the, the actual thousand year, the millennial kingdom, a segment of time that comes to an end, though the kingdom is still, is still spiritually present. It is still here amongst us. And, um, I'm talking to that audience, but also to those who research the LXX. And what I did when I came out with the 7,000-year timeline deception is uh, I showed that there are about 1,500-year discrepancies between the Hebrew Masoretic, that is the Old Testament that everyone basically has in their Bibles, and the Greek LXX. I do not have time to go through all the quotes in the New Testament right now where they are quoting from the Greek LXX. It's very clear that the writers of the Greek, the translators of the Greek LXX, were using uh, writing from a Hebrew, Hebrew documents that no longer exist. And even Josephus was quoting from, he claimed the Hebrew, and it was matching up with the Greek LXX. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, so there's a 1,500-year discrepancy. Well, one of the problems with that, and this is one of the elephants in the room, is people would tell me, well, Noel, you've got to toss out Jasher. You've got to get rid of these extra-biblical books. And I'm like, why? Why would I throw out the baby with the bathwater? Those, there's, there's a lot of questions I have about those books. Uh, it doesn't mean I need to toss them out. And what I'm referring to specifically is the relationship between Nimrod and Abraham. They should be about a thousand years removed. And that, that's a, that can be a big issue for some of these books. Uh, it would be really a, logistically a, an impossibility for Nimrod to have been able to be over a thousand years old and still interacting with Abraham. So how do we uh, rectify this? Well, I hope my presentation will bring some clarity. It will, ask, it will uh, put some forward, it will, excuse me, blah, 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 I'm stumbling tonight. It will put forward some new questions, I'm sure, in many of your minds, but it will answer some old ones. That's typically how this happens. So let's uh, jump right in. Well, before we do jump into this, I do want to point out that I am excited on the first week of January, we're going to be shipping out the books of the Not Serene to all TUC club members. And uh, of course, anyone who has pre-ordered the book, you can pre-order in the store. This is the first book that was released by Adam Fink, Apparel of the Vineyard. It is his editing uh, translation of the books of the Not Serene. And um, 
I'm really excited for this, so be sure to check it out, and I will drop a link below. So let's get right into this. This is called The Many Lives of Nimrod, an introduction, starting on page three. Shembard Noah died 670 years before the birth of Avram, according to the Greek Septuagint, and that's a problem. More like a plot hole large enough to ram the Pope mobile through it. If you don't see the headache in the separation of some seven centuries, then it's like you trying to convince me that Nostradamus and John F. Kennedy were college roommates. A problem, but only for mortals. I am not giving up on the idea that Shem became a Mikhilzadek quite yet despite the sheer number of people telling me I should altogether drop the subject and the literature associated with him. Books like Yashar, for one, that would be Jasher. Let's talk about it then. I'm still holding that Yashar is legitimate. Legitimately corrupted, but still legitimate. Even Moses Samuel, its 1840 English translator, admitted that the book had been touched by the hands of scribes. Their scribes. That's the messy business with research right there. You are forced to get your hands dirty. Sometimes you even have to throw up your hands at the end of the day and choose to live in the tension. Uh, I wish I had put a quote in here, but Moses Samuel, the guy who uh, brought the book of uh, Jasher out to the public in the first English translations, that's what he said. He said that he was fully convinced that it was a legitimate historical book, but he's like, yeah, uh, this has been touched by the scribes. It has been corrupted. And... That really shouldn't surprise us because uh, either the, the, the Hebrew Masoretic or the Greek LXX, one of the two has been touched by the scribes. One of the two are not accurate. And uh, I, I read from the Masoretic in my Bible. I don't toss it out. All indicators tell me that the school of Shem was one for the angels. Classes were initially held on Mount Zion, but the time... By the time that Yitzhak and Yaakov became students, the bookwork was being managed in paradise. Even the Masoretic timeline admits that to be the case. What I am claiming is that Shem was an immortal by the time that he became Mekilzedek. You barely have to read between the lines to come to that conclusion. The problem with most in a post-Newtonian world is that something like that is, uh, it is even remotely possible. What do they teach children in school nowadays? I think it is the most likely possibility of all. Coming to terms with the immortal Shem storyline got me thinking. If Shem and Nimrod were contemporaries, and they most certainly were, then how was Yaakov's twin brother capable of killing him? That's what it says right here. And Nimrod and two of his men that were with him came to the place where they were when Esau started suddenly from his lurking place and drew his sword and hastened and ran to Nimrod and cut off his head. And Esau fought a desperate fight with the two men that were with Nimrod. And when they called out to him, Esau turned to them and smote them to death with his sword. Yashar 27, 7-8 Nimrod would have been old, far too old to be off by Abraham's grandson. We're talking ballpark figures of 1,200 years old. I could accept that Esau cold-cocked an old man in a wheelchair, but not even Methuselah surpassed a thousand. I've already crunched the numbers. Perhaps we will go over uh, my chart in a little while or not. But for now, try to follow along. Nimrod was Ham's grandson. 
Meanwhile, Shem's grandson, Canaan, lived only 330 years after his son, Shelah, was born, making him 460 in all. Tack on another 132 years between the birth of Canaan and the flood, and you can see that Canaan would have died 592 years after the flood. Abraham wouldn't come along for an additional 500 years and some change. What gives? And then I read stuff like this. It came to pass that Shem marched with an army to Babel and overtook Nimrod in battle. The sword of Shem rent Nimrod asunder. The Book of the Two Pearls 2.8 Kind of difficult to claim that Shem killed Nimrod in battle if Esau was the one to spring from the bushes and plant a roundhouse kick on the oldest man who ever lived some several hundred years later. While you're processing the paradox, I've got another passage for your consideration. Warning, it's not for the faint of heart. Probably a good idea to read with bumbling lips rather than out loud. Of course, here I am reading it to you. So hide your wife, hide your children. It goes something like this. Then Ogaius entered the blood pit of B of the earth. I won't say his name. You could see what Elohim I'm referring to. It's the, the uh, big old bull, uh, the golden calf, the big B. And Ogaius stepped forward and pulled at the head and skull of Nimrod as King Og pulled at the ankles. And Nimrod's neck gave first, and Ogaius wrenched it free. And as Nimrod's flesh tore, he gave up the ghost, the Ruach, and was eaten with worms. Pretty descriptive. And Ogaius and King Og in celebration, something about the great dragon of old, dot, 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 the pit and the fire, dot, dot, dot and preparation, dot, the Book of King Og. Probably didn't expect that. Nimrod's head was pulled off by brute strength rather than decapitated. Graphic, I know. But then, what killing is it? Don't say I didn't warn you, though. In any normal murder investigation, the, uh, plausibly, the plausibly guilty will schmooze up to the investigator, hoping to avoid the suspects list. Not so with Nimrod, apparently. Shem seemed to skate under the radar. But then we have three other individuals anxiously lining up to claim they're responsible for doing him in. Esau, Ogaius, and Og. What I didn't tell you, though, is that the killing of Nimrod at the hands of Ogaius and Og happened on the very day of Noah's flood. And I know what you're already thinking. Nimrod was a grandchild of Ham of the Ham clan. Therefore, getting whacked while the ark set sail in the background is totally out of the realm of possibility. Is it, though? Perhaps so. I wasn't there and wouldn't really know. I certainly don't have all the answers. This is an open book test, and I'm learning as I go. The 7,000-year paradox just so happens to be where my report has landed me. Three separate lives, three separate killings. Three alternate timelines. This is the story of Nimrod. By the way, the original title of this paper was The 7,000-Year Timeline Paradox, uh, showing that uh, there are these, like, like kind of in a time travel movie, like Back to the Future 2, showing that there's these two timelines that sometimes they line up and sometimes they don't. I decided not to go that route. All right, page seven. Will the real Moshe please stand up? History never records for us the person Nimrod. We are given a short list of names to work with. King Ninus of Nineveh and Gilgamesh of Uruk are two contenders. Nobody is fingering Nebuchadnezzar II and for seemingly obvious reasons, but I have my reasons for suspecting him as well. Nimrod assuredly had many names. What most people don't know is that Moshe had many names as well. 
It seems like nearly everyone in his upbringing referred to him as something else. Anything other than the name we call him, which is Moshe, consider the following. And this, of course, interesting enough, comes from Jasher, too. There are so many clues in Jasher, the very book that people want me to throw out. This book is incredible. And at the end of two years, when the child grew up, she brought him to the daughter of Pharaoh. This would be Moshe. And he was under her as a son. And she, Bathia, called his name Moshe. For she said, because I drew him out of the water. And Amram, his father, called his name Chabar. For he said... It was for him that he associated with his women when, when he had turned away. And Yokeved, his mother, called his name Yekotiel, because she said, I have hoped for him to El Shaddai, and Elohim restored him unto me. And Miriam, his sister, called him Yered, or Jared, for she descended after him to the river to know what his end would be. And Aaron, his brother, called his name Avi Zanuk, saying, My father left my mother and returned to her on his account. And Kohath, the father of Amram, called his name Abigdor, because on his account did Elihim repair the breach of the house of Yaakov, that they could no longer throw their male children into the water. And their nurse called him Avi Sokol, saying, In his tabernacle was he hidden for three months on account of the children of Ham. And all Yasharel called his name Shema Yahu, son of Nathaniel, for they said, In his days has Elihim heard their cries. A little spilling typo there, heard their sis, and rescued them from their oppressors. And Moshe was in Pharaoh's house and was unto Bathia, Pharaoh's daughter, as a son, and Moshe grew up amongst the king's children. Jasher 68, 24-32. See what I mean? His mother called him, oh man, don't make me do this again. <laughs> his mother called him Yekateyel, his sister called him Yared, his brother called him Avi Zanuk, his father called him Chabar. His grandfather called him Abigdor. His nurse called him Avi Soko. Yasharil called him Shemayahu. It is only Bafia, his adoptive mother and the daughter of Pharaoh, who called him Moshe. We are not told, however, what Pharaoh called him. If I had to take a crack shot at it, I'd go with Amenabhet uh, Fourth. That's what I suspect Pharaoh called him. Moshe, Amenabhet the fourth. No, I can't prove that to be fact. It's another hunch and worth consideration. Here's why. His father, Amenabhet the third, was the sixth pharaoh of the twelfth dynasty. And I know we're dealing in official history, but hear me out on this one. Amenabhet the third had no son. I know I said Amenabhet the fourth was his son, but that's not entirely accurate. He did, however, have a daughter. Her name was Sobik Neferu. While the third, Amenabhet the third, and the princess still lived, the fourth was not only adopted, but co-reigned with Pharaoh for nine years over Upper and Lower Egypt. Did Sobik Neferu raise him? It seems plausible. For whatever reason, Amenabhet IV suddenly disappeared from history. No burial tomb to speak of, not even his ancestry is recorded. When Amenabhet III died, his daughter Sobek Nefiru filled in where the fourth was intended to rule. Her reign lasted only 48 years and then she too died. Here's where it gets fascinating. 
Egypt's wealth and power reached its peak in the 12th dynasty under Amenhotep III. Without an heir, his kingdom began to fall apart. Forty years later, or after Amenhotep IV's mysterious absence, Neferhotep suffered his kingdom to even greater losses. His military was apparently decimated. Uh, well, just chalk that one up to the Red Sea crossing. The slave city of Cahun was abandoned. I think we all know why. And once more, Neferhotep's body was never found. Shortly after Neferhotep's death, Egypt was destab destabilized and overrun by the uh, Hyksos. The uh, Hyksos appeared to be the biblical Amalekites, and their genealogy can be traced to Edom. Point being, Amenhotep IV went missing, and Egypt's greatest uh, greatness had forever ended. Did Amenhotep IV return 40 years later and finish the job? Or, I should say, Moshe. Hopefully you understand where I'm going with that. Uh, we know him by the name of Moshe, but how many people in his own lifetime actually knew him by that name? So when we're looking for the historical Nimrod, you can't just go looking for Nimrod. So, page 10. Will the real Nimrod please stand up? The defining difference between Moshe and Pharaoh is that one is a name and the other a title. There was only one Moshe, but many Pharaohs, as you well know. And I should have read that. If I had more time, it would have presented also in the book of Jasher. It talks about, uh, you know, the many different Pharaohs and how they all went by the name of Pharaoh. How come Moshe or any other writers of scripture didn't think to name the Pharaohs? They're simply Pharaoh, this Pharaoh or that Pharaoh. It actually manages to lend a hand to the mysteries of Isis narrative. The son is the father and all that. Well, I'm beginning to think the same thing about Nimrod. He's a name, but also he's a name, but also so much more than a name. Knowing what we do of Moshe, it shouldn't be a stretch of the imagination to figure that Nimrod went by many names. And for the writer of scripture attempting to describe him, vice versa. The many names and persons were sometimes known only as one. We are all familiar with this passage. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a, uh, a warrior and hunter in the earth. He was a warrior hunter before Yahuwah. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the warrior hunter before Yahuwah. Uh, Beer Sheath 10, 8-9. It says Cush begat Nimrod. I take that to mean Nimrod was his name. Maybe not his birth-given name, perhaps his mother and his grandfather and his brothers and sisters and cousins and children and grandchildren, as well as his subjects, each called him by a different name. But this is all we have to work with at the moment, Nimrod. Well, not quite. Here we see the Sefer HaYashar, chapter uh, 11, and it says, And Nimrod dwelt in Babel, and he there renewed his reign over the rest of his subjects, and he reigned securely, and the subjects and princes of Nimrod called his name Amraphel, saying that he that at the tower his princes and men fell through his means. So there you have it. After the tragedy of Babel, Nimrod is given another name to go by, Amraphel. But then look at how the Clementine homilies names him. In the 17th generation, Nimrod one or the first, or I, or something or other, reigned in Babylonia and built a city, and thence migrated to the Persians and taught them to worship fire, recognitions of Clement 130. Some versions just say Nimrod, while multiple others, including my own, christen him with the name Nimrod I, telling us there's at least a Nimrod second somewhere down the turnpike, if not a third or a fourth. 
Perhaps Nimrod the first was diced by the samurai like sword skills of the Shembar Noah uh, narrative, whereas Nimrod the second or the third or the fourth was blindsided by Esau. We shall have to keep reading elsewhere to find out more information. Those multiple death scenarios will be further explored in a little while, but for now, I can't read something like Nimrod the first teaching the Persians to worship fire and let that pass. I'd be letting the ball drop if I did. That's huge. Worshipping fire is an immortalization rite. The ancients would pass their children through the flames often in worship of uh, the big B. For example, uh, we read this in Second Chronicles. Moreover, he, Achaz, uh, burnt incense in the valley of the sons of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom Yahuwah had cast out before the children of Yasharel. Second Chronicles 28.3 Passing one's child through the flames in the valley of the sons of Hinnom isn't irony either. Another name for the valley is Gehenna, otherwise known as the Lake of Fire, which is in the third heaven. You might be asking yourself why a parent would want to toss their child into the Lake of Fire. They were attempting to immortalize them, and potentially others, more like themselves, if anything. If, as I put there, if not themselves. I need to stop jumping ahead of myself. Thereby sparing the neophyte from what is destined to come. Total annihilation by fire. Notice how it is Nimrod who introduced the practice to the world. Nobody else. Not even before the flood. Here's how they did it before the flood. For those of you who have been around here at Cosmology for the last year, you know I love this, uh, this book, the Book of Limic of Cain, uh, only because it explains so much from the Cain perspective. And Limic and Yuval the Giant then sacrificed to dot, 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 Leviathan and taught the sons of Cain and Seth how to pass their children through the waters to Leviathan. Before the flood, they passed their children through the water uh, and right into the mouth of Leviathan, afterwards through the flames. That's because they all knew the flood waters were coming. But rather than repent of their sins, they wanted to circumnavigate Yahuwah's set-apart ways and escape death by their own method. Afterwards, the Most High had to had promised never to flood the world again, exchanging his judgment to that of fire. Alternatively, as immortal rites are concerned, it was Nimrod who connected the dots and made the transition. Of course, that gives us even more or greater context than Nimrod's attempt at tossing Abraham into the flames. The story is found in Yashar, again, among other places like the writings of Abraham, and it is given mention uh, in the Genesis Targum. I'm going to give you the shortened version, though. Abraham, who is the poor youth and in whom was the spirit of prophecy from Yahuwah, and to whom Yahuwah was known when three years old, and who would not worship an idol, then the wicked Nimrod, who was an old and foolish king, and because Abraham would not worship an idol, he threw him into the burning furnace, and a miracle was performed for him from Yahuwah of the world, and he delivered him from it. And even after this, Nimrod had no sense to be admonished not to worship the idol which he worshipped before. Ecclesiastes Targum 4.13 Seems like Nimrod was appeasing the gods again, and his worship service backfired. I figure the miracle performed had a message attached to it. Yahuwah was letting Nimrod and the subjects of his kingdom know how those immortal rites would go down in the coming judgment. Only the set-apart would escape Gehenna's destruction and live on into eternity. But as you can clearly see, a very old Nimrod did not have the sense to admit, much less notice, that he was go going about it all wrong. He wanted to conquer heaven, as well as mortality, 
without following the path of Shem Bar Noah or Abraham in the Melchizedek order. Um, I'll just quickly comment here that uh, you read in the Torah about you know an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and it's a, it's a justice system. Uh, you know, it's recompense, but uh, for the life of every person, another life is required. And you see that a lot in these immortalization rites. And we'll get into it. You'll see more of what I'm talking about when we get to the semi-ramus a little bit down the turnpike. Uh, but the the idea is, is that I kind of think that when they were throwing Abraham in, you know, on one part, on one point, it was a, a judgment for what he believed. Uh, but it was it was kind of two birds with one stone. It was them attempting to, I'm going to give this life to the gods, offer this life up in order to spare our own life. Um, it all had to do with, you know, immortalization rights. But anyways, continuing on. This comes from the Book of the Cave of Treasures. And in the days of Nimrod, the mighty man or giant, uh, a fire appeared which ascended from the earth. And Nimrod went down and looked at it and worshipped it. And he established priests to minister there and to cast incense into it. From that day, the Persians began to worship fire, and they do so to this day. There is the fire worship again, but from a different history, his, uh, his story provider. It is once again attributed to the Persians, but originating with Nimrod, just like the uh, Clement passage. So what we have here is another confirmation. If I'm reading it correctly, priests were employed to stoke the fire, so that the worship might be an ongoing thing. I'm guessing this was the very fire which Abraham was later tossed in, even if there were numerous Nimrods between this and that one. The same passage also claims that Nimrod was a giant. I know we haven't gotten to naming the first Nimrod yet, but, but when we do, there is your connection. The Prometheus-like discoverer of fire was a giant and the first Nimrod. Jump a couple of paragraphs down and then we read... Uh, read the following. It says there, the boo. I think that was the book, and uh, I was uh, crossing stuff out in that remain. And Nimrod went to Yakdora of Nod. And when he arrived at the lake, or sea, of Atras, he found there Yantan, the son of Noah. And Nimrod went down and bathed in the lake, and he came to Yontan and did homage unto him. And Yontan said, Thou art a king. Dost thou homage unto me? And Nimrod said unto him, It is because of thee that I have come down here. And he remained with him for three years. And Yontan taught Nimrod wisdom and, a, and the art of revelation, divining. And he said unto him, Come not back again to me. Pause. Extras. All right, guys, thank you for uh, muting the mics. Where was I? Pause. There is more to the passage, but I will ask you, who is the fourth son? I thought Noah only had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yapeth. Never heard of Yontan before. The incident involving Ham snooping around into Noah's nakedness would be the answer to that one. Yontan was probably none other than the fruits of that incident though he went by another name. Canaan was the child of incest. Not only was he Noah's son, but he was also his grandson, thereby making him a cursed child. We haven't gotten to the further adventures of Ham quite yet in this present discussion. He was a problem child and then something. You'd think Nimrod would learn the art of divining from him. 
uh, but Ham was too busy toppling thrones. They might have not even gotten along, and in fact, they they did not. They were Ham and Nimrod were ultimately mortal em- enemies, I believe. It would explain. Uh, blah, I'm just stumbling tonight. It would explain why Noah's fourth son taught this practice to the giant Nimrod. Canaan, or rather Yontan, didn't fall very far from the tree. Continuing, and when Nimrod went up from the east and began to practice the art of divining, uh, very many men marveled at him. And when uh, somebody named Idhasher, the priest who ministered to the fire that ascended from the earth, saw that Nimrod was practicing these exalted courses, he entreated the devil who appeared in connection with that fire to teach him the wisdom of Nimrod. And as the devils were in the habit of destroying those who came nigh unto them by sin, the devil said unto the priest, A man cannot become a priest and a magian, there's your magi, until he hath known carnally his mother and his daughter and his sister. And Idhasher, the priest, did this. What I... Uh, yeah, gross. And from that time, the priest and the Magians and the Persians take their mothers and their sisters and their daughters to wife, the Book of the Cave of Treasures. With each of these passages, I feel like a dump truck is backing up and unloading all over the desk while I presently work. Beep, beep, beep. There's excrement all over this one, and I'm not ready to address the full picture quite yet. You will have to take a mental note of the part where the Magian was ex- expected to care uh, to carnally know his mother daughter and sister in order to follow in nimrod's footsteps as the procedure will be explained a little later down the road the reason being is that some of you are already saying semiramis is being implicated here perhaps so but my present conclusion has assigned her to another nimrod entirely this is the first nimrod the man who became a giant the discoverer of fire as an immortalization right What we see in this passage is that the devil taught those mystery rites to the priest tending the fire. Was this the devil or simply a devil or devils? And was the same devil responsible for instructing Nimrod? I ask because Nimrod's instructor in the worship of fire was given a name in another text, and you'll probably never guess who it was. We read this in the writings of Abraham, chapter 18.3. Moreover, Nimrod was instructed in all the secrets of the evil combination by his father, Cain, for Cain had not perished in the flood. Of course, I went over this a few weeks ago, if you guys read my pre-existence conversation. Cain survived the flood. And how can that be exactly? Most people will test a book as to its scriptural potential, and if there's one passage which they don't like, they'll throw the entire thing out rather than wrestling with the implications or admitting that it is perhaps their doctrine which is, which is wrong and not the book. This is like that with the writings of Abraham. I have had several individuals now point to this passage that I just read from, this specific one, and claim it's proof enough that the entire book needs disposed of. Cain surviving the flood isn't speaking of his physical self, though. No, the son of Hasatan was a terrestrial ruach rather than a heavenly-born one. If more explanation is needed, then reading my pre-existence paper will be required of you, or you could just watch the video where I went over the same thing. Here is the short of it. Heavenly ruachoth returned to the father of ruachoth upon their death, whereas terrestrial ruachoth become demons. The terrestrial ruachoth, uh, which included the children of the Watchers, may have died during the flood, but they became the living dead afterwards in the form of wandering Ruachoth, demons. 
as the first master mason, Cain was one of them. He was the one instructing Nimrod to transition from the worship of water to that of fire. How any of this was possible can only be attributed to Cain being the direct offspring of Hasatan rather than Adam. And now I am curious. What sort of world leaders has Cain instructed, let alone possessed, over the millennia? By the time this is over, you may be asking the same question regarding Nimrod. I said we would get to Semiramis a little later down the road, and we will. Meanwhile, knowing the identity of the so-called devil who instructed the, the Magi of Babylon is telling. Cain knew his sister. Check. You will have to read the, that disaster for yourself in First Adam and Eve. The desire to carnally know his own sister aided in Cain's bitterness, which led to the murder of Havel. Did he also know his mother? Not sure on that one. I'd like to think he didn't. The same book, though, definitely has him beating her. Uh, uh, Chua, Hava, Eve. It is quite possible that Cain carnally knew another mother, Lilith being her name. That is just another investigative hunch, though. And then we read this in the Travels of Noah into Europe. About the one and twentieth year of this, his return from the above written voyage, Noah began to divide kingdoms and also to erect monarchies in the world, of which Nimbroth the giant, the son of this nephew Cush, who was the son of Ham, was first of all established. Hmm. In the hundred and one and thirtieth year after the inundation, and he was called the first Saturn or king over the Babylonians and Assyrians, who afterward in a fair uh, campania called Sinar, laid the foundation and erected the great tower and city of Babel, which he had caused to be built even to the height of the highest mountains. But after by the confusion of languages, it was given over and left unfinished. Nimroth, after this, lived in peace and tranquility 56 years. The travels had known to Europe. What have we learned from this? The builder of the Tower of Babel was a giant named Nimroth. We already knew Nimrod was a giant, but now we're seeing a confirmation from a different angle. He went by another name as well, Saturn. Nimroth was the first Saturn by which Saturn worship derives. But seeing as how he was the builder of the Tower and Babylon, we can also deduce that he was Nimrod. The writer doesn't outright say Nimrod, but he, didn't, uh, he needn't have to. Nimroth is further identified as the son of Cush, who was the son of Ham. This is what I was saying earlier about the man having many names, and over, and over multiple generations from father to son, which often causes confusion. The transition between the first Nimrod and the second Nimrod can be seen in another passage from the same book. It hath been mentioned before how that upon Noah's first departure out of Armenia, he constituted and established his nephew, Sabatius Saga, that's a pretty epic name, Sabatius Saga, surnamed Saturn, to rule as king and patriarch over that country of Armenia. The time of the reign of Jupiter Belus, the son of Nimbroth, that's the giant, the first Nimrod, the second king of Babylon, what? Who yielded unto his disobedient desires and coveting to command as sole monarch, monarch of the whole world, was the first violator and infringer of the ordinances appointed in those days, and by whose means the golden age afterward lost such her title and never since was called so. For before such as uh, such his over haughty humors, all things were peaceable, common, and free. 
this Jupiter, or I could just say Jupiter, uh, endeavored by all devices possible to overturn the greatness of Sabatius Saga, surnamed Saturn, and com commanded also his son, Ninus, to undertake all means how to bring him and his family to death and destruction, which thing they jointly uh, effectuated so far, as hardly escaped he the snares and subtleties laid to entrap him, the travels of Noah into Europe. So the son of Nimroth the giant was somebody who would later be known as Jupiter or uh, Jupiter Bayless. Hmm. Bayless is just a play on Bell, which means the big B or Lord in the Semitic language. Sounds like a Nimrod name if I've ever heard one. You may have heard of this Jupiter fellow in grade school or college. He became an Elohim, and they named a planet after him. I'm quite sure he went by another dizzying spill of names as well, but the other one you already know, Nimrod. Try not to be confused when I tell you that this Nimrod, the second Nimrod, was not the builder of the tower. No, the builder of the tower was the first Nimrod, Nimrod the giant. Uh, Jupiter Belus was the second king of Babylon, but also appears to be the first king of Assyria. You'll see where I'm sourcing that information in a moment. Well, Jupiter, the son of Nimroth, had a son of his own. He probably had many sons, but the greatest among them was listed here as Ninus, the third king of Babylon. Are you ready for this? Ninus was also Nimrod. The other confusing part about this passage is trying to figure out who Noah's nephew was. Here he is given the name Sabatius Saga, but if I recall, Noah entered the ark with his wife and three sons as well as their wives. There was no nephew. The only nephew I have ever read about derives from Second Enoch. Noah and his brother, uh, his brother named Ner, the name of Ner's son was Mechilzedek. Mechilzedek was the first Mechilzedek. Afterwards, the name appears to have become a title, a title like Nimrod or Pharaoh, a title which Shem would eventually be inferred. I should probably mention that Mechilzedek ascended to heaven before the flood, being promised for another hour. The, the first Mechilzedek, the pre-Diluvian nephew of Noah, Mechilzedek. And so naming a nephew of Noah, Sabatius Saga, certainly has my interest. Who is this person that is listed here as ruling in Armenia, and we, we don't hear about him anymore in this book? Who was this guy? It seems as though the general consensus is that Sabatia Saga and Shem are the same person. Then again, most people don't have the faintest clue that Shem wasn't the first Mechilzedek. The confusion is understandable. I checked. Sabatia Saga means the Holy One, uh, the Lord of Hosts. Until further evidence is presented, I'm holding out that Sabatia Saga is the first Mechilzedek returned to complete his mission, which is what said would happen in Second Enoch, by the way. He was a thorn in the side of Jupiter Belus and ruled from Armenia. Belus was apparently incapable of defeating him, but then again, so was his son, Ninus. Ninus was specifically tasked with bringing his family to destruction. A prominent member of the Mechilzedek family was Abraham. All right, so let's read what it says in the recognitions of Clements regarding Ninus. First among whom is named a certain king, Nimrod, the magic art having been handed down to him as by a flash whom the Greeks also called Ninus, and from whom the city of Nineveh took its name. In review, Nimrod the giant built the Tower of Babel. He was the first Nimrod. Balas the second Nimrod who succeeded him, by which history would call him, uh, or ba let me back this up. Balas was the second Nimrod who succeeded him, by which history would call him Lord, the big B. 
And then Ninus was the third who built the city carrying his name. Nin for Nineveh. In turn, Nineveh would be recorded as the hub for Ishtar worship, denoting Ninus's mommy. Well, look what else we read about him. Ninus then, who succeeded his father Balus, the first king of Assyria, was already the second king of that kingdom when Abraham was born in the land of the Chaldees. This is coming from St. Augustine, by the way, the city of God. This quote derives from Augustine, I know. <laughs> he may have been a knock for Rome, but that doesn't make his information inaccurate. There were any number of other historians claiming the same thing, and he needed to come across as credible if he wanted to push Rome's agenda forward. He had to be a credible historian. Let's not get sidetracked, though. We have already read about how Belus instructed Ninus to wage war against the Melchizedek people group. Well, Ninus was the Nimrod of Abraham's generation. Suddenly, the stories we read in the Masoretic are beginning to make a whole lot more sense when lining up these events with the perceived paradox of LXX literature. Nimrod may have lived a great many years, but over a millennium needn't be his number. The first two Nimrods could have lived 500 years each, with the third and the fourth seeing their de decades radically decreased. Yes, there is a fourth Nimrod. We haven't gotten to him yet. There is a plethora of players everywhere, Nimrods and Melchizedeks, and as I have already mentioned, the confusion is understood. It is undoubtedly determined to be so by our modern-day controllers, and likewise intended by a certain segment of the scribes. There are numerous confirmations on the multiple Nimrods. Apparently, the ancients seem to have a good grasp on the matter until the Masoretic timeline overturned the discussion. That's what one of the things that really amazed me in looking at this. Guys, I'm not making this up. I'm not just saying that there are multiple Nimrods. The ancient historians have already done that for us. And, you know, original church history, uh, post-Messiah, they were going by the scripture uh, that we know as the LXX, uh, even when they converted to Latin. And at some point in history, uh, the church decided to flip everything and go with the Masoretic. So odd how that happened. And that has not been looked at or discussed enough. You know, what is really happening there? Why did they make that decision after such a long time rejecting it? Well, here's what we read in uh, Travels of Noah into Europe. Hold on, I need another drink of coffee. He began also first to set down laws, precepts, and directions unto his people and to possess them with the opinion of good obedience until their prince and persuaded them by fair and gentle means to the embracement of civil and quiet life and conversation. And this, Barosus saith, was performed and done in the fourth year of Ninus, king of Babylon. And in this king's government was the patriarch Abraham born, which was just by all nearest computation towards the end of his reign. And in the four and fortieth year of the before specified Ninus, king of Babylon. The temptation will be to confuse the moral laws of conduct put forward by Ninus with the code of uh, Hammurabi, but I'm not so certain that needs to be the case. The kingdom of Nimrod was a, was a vast place spanning centuries and with hundreds of players grasping for power. Even if the uh, Hammurabi code was Nimrod, as some suggest, it could have been any one of the Nimrods. The, the confirmation I wanted you to notice was Abraham. 
but not just any Abraham, the patriarch Abraham, as if there were another. This is the same Nimrod who tossed him into the flames. Yasha records the event, though the passage I showed you derived from the Ecclesiastes Targum. Ninus, or rather Nimrod, was hoping to kill Abraham long before the fire incident, though. He was making attempts at his life from the very moment of his birth. Well, reading from Yashar this, uh, reading from Yashar this time. Yashar chapter 8. And Terah took Abram his son secretly together with his mother and nurse, and he concealed them in a cave, and he brought them their provisions monthly. And Yahuwah was with Abram in the cave, and he grew up, and Abram was in the cave ten years. And the king and his princes, soothsayers and sages, thought that the king had killed him. I am showing you this small passage as evidence that the deed was done, or rather attempted, when in fact there is an entire chapter of dialogue pertaining to Terah, the soothsayers, and Nimrod leading up to this event. It involves a star in the heavens, much like the one that appeared for Mashiach, an event which promised to disrupt the kingdom of Nimrod. You will have to read the chapter for yourself. The whole event could be summed up, though, in one single passage. On the night that I was born, there were great signs in the heavens, and when Nimrod's astrologers saw them, they were astonished, and they spoke evil of me to the king, saying that surely I should overthrow his kingdom. The writings of Abraham 22.1. Remember now, I have already shown you that this Nimrod was the third successive Nimrod to rule from Babylon. He had many names, but Ninus was a prevalent one. This may be repetitive for some, but I am attempting to starve off any confusion. And there is confusion. People are confused. The narrative was set up that way, thanks in part to the scribes who succeeded in making the Masoretic timeline the narrative of the land. I had started out saying how numerous individuals were telling me the finer points of the Yasher story needed altogether dropped if the LXX timeline was the more accurate one. But even proponents of the Septuagint understood that Abraham's infant murder attempt was genuine. The following text sides with the LXX in the Civil War, and look at what it says. On the day of the birth of Abraham, the house shone with a bright light. Many people fell down, and there was, a, there was a cry in a loud voice which said, Woe is me, woe is me, for he who shall crush my kingdom hath been born. And he who cried out wept, and described the events which should take place, saying, It is he who shall burn down my abode. And there were among the people certain men who said, Kill this child forthwith. And those who spoke thus knew well that grace would be given to Abraham. And Elohim set mercy in the heart of the father of Abraham, and he said to the Satans, plural, Whence come ye, O ye who tell me that I should kill my son, who is the gracious gift of Elohim? And he reared the child, and Abraham was circumcised by the hand of Gabriel and Michael, who helped him, from the book of the mysteries of uh, heaven and earth. Now, keep in mind, that's a huge um, time jump there to the circumcision event, which came much later in his life. The Book of the Cave of Treasures. Though I would like to find out what this Book of the Mysteries of Heaven and Earth are. Well, I'll be. I've never heard of the Book of the Mysteries of Heaven and Earth before. No doubt another enticing read to add to my ever-growing stack of buried text lists. Nimrod is never mentioned by name, but he needn't be when, in fact, Nimrod was simply a vessel for the kingdom of Satan, or more specifically, the Satans, plural, plural, all along. Point is, we are never told about the death attempt on baby Abraham in the Hebrew Masoretic or Greek Septuagint version of Beersheath, Genesis, and yet the ancient historians deemed it so. 
Just because there are scribes out there who'd rather shrink the timeline down by blending as many as four Nimrods into one doesn't mean we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The whole point of this, guys, is just to show you that uh, a book, the Book of the Cave of Treasures, which is not a Jewish book, it is not a part of the Masoretic timeline, um, they are claiming in here that the the attempt on Abraham's life as a baby was legitimate that it happened, all right, which can be found in the Book of Jasher. And then uh, page 23, <laughs> plenty of unpleasant. Who said tonight would be pleasant? I'm sorry, guys. This, this is, after all, the eve of Saturnalia when we are uh, having this discussion. And this is called Where Semiramis Comes Into It, or Where Semiramis Comes Into This. Immortal rights play into the entire Nimrod narrative from beginning to end. Fire is an obvious choice, but also the sun and the you-know-what comes into it. Speaking of which, he was obsessed with immortality. But more than anything, so was his mommy. She was the one who wanted every one of us to know throughout the ages how special her little boy was. Nimrod was a mommy's boy, and there are monuments all over the earth to celebrate that fact. On a side note, you're probably wondering why I just forced you to look at a career-spanning photographs of one-eyed Madonna, an entire gauntlet of them. I totally cold-cocked you, you're thinking, and without cause or warning, probably predetermined on my part too. It's because I've turned my attention now to Semiramis, Nimrod's mother, and I'm calling it She and Madonna. I was looking for an illustration which might depict the Queen of Heaven, and Madonna's close enough. Also, I tried to capture as many fashion trends, hairstyles, and dye colors as possible. Here's a few more for the road, because there's plenty of Madonna to go around if you get my meaning. Apparently, when Madonna isn't hiding a single eye behind a conveniently placed pillar, she's making public appearances by popping one eye through a slit picture of the same said eye. Ridiculous. I'd say she couldn't be any more obvious, but the normies seem as blind as ever about these deeper spiritual realities. And so I will explain. It's some sort of penis, <laughs> penis complex. Let me repeat that again. No, I won't repeat that again. I just missed the sentence. That bothers me. Hopefully you didn't choke down a $20 snack when reading that last sentence because of inflation and all. I'm seriously trying to get past Madonna, but then look at how ridiculous she's being. Even when the patch falls off mid-photo shoot, she places it over her eye and tries to make it look sexual so as to play the part of Babylon's mommy. Still, the normies don't seem to notice. Incredible. The part where Madonna has a lifelong obsession with, with One-Eyed Willie is only the exoteric explanation, though. It all goes back to the Mysteries of Isis, but even before that, to the Babylonian immortality rites. Do you recall how the ancient historians believed there were multiple Nimrods, but not just one, which I've shown you some examples. At least three of them. I'm thinking four. Still haven't gotten to that, uh, that far down the road yet. In review, here are the formal names of the original trio. Nimrod the Giant, Billus, and Ninus. The question you should be asking is which of the three Semiramis was married to? All of them, maybe, or but specifically two. Year one of Abraham, he was the first patriarch of the Jewish people. During his time, Ninus and Semiramis ruled over Assyria and all of Asia, Eusebius. 
Had Eusebius put more effort into his history lesson, he might have said Semiramis married Bayless, but then Ninus took took her to wife after the death of his father. That's why I uh, stated she was married to at least two of them. Count on your fingers again. Ninus was the third ruler of Babylon, seeing as how his grandfather introduced the worship of fire and built the tower. Perhaps you are seeing where I'm going with this. The fourth Nimrod would be the child which Ninus sired with Mommy. I had started out with a wild claim describing Nimrod's demise at the Sword of Shem. I know, epic, right? If only you knew the whole of it. Well, I am about to show you. I will do my best to deliver the entire passage uh, uninterrupted. I put interrupted, but uninterrupted, without stopping for comment, no matter how excited I get typing this stuff out. In the land of Ur, there was a man by the name of Avram. Ur was a Babel, and Nimrod ruled the kingdom with great cunning. Noah's son Shem heard about the exploits of Nimrod. He heard that after Cush died, Nimrod had taken his own mother to wife. Her name was Shemiramis, which was a daughter of Shem. This unholy alliance angered Shem. It was an unthought-of relationship in those days that a son should play the monger with his own mother. One day, Shem came to Nimrod and said, You son of Cush, your spirit, your ruach, is black because of the sin of all sins this day. In three days, I will tear down your temple and there will be nothing left but the shameful object of your lust. Nimrod stood up and said, Shem, you see how mighty of a huntsman I am. I am the only true savior of this confused society. I am Elohim to the people of my realm. I could destroy even you at this moment if I so desire. Shem said, No longer shall you be Nimrod, Elohim of the hunts, but in three days you will be uh, Nephil Rashim, the fallen king. Two years came to pass, and Nimrod forgot the warning of Shem. Around this time, Avram was called from Ur by Yahuwah to begin his congregation. Avram left the idols of Nimrod behind, and Elohim changed his name to Abraham, the father of many nations. Abraham sent word to Nimrod, saying, In one year is your death, O king. Your harlot bitch will also die in seven years of your death. However, your religion will taint the generations of my people. And at the last day, you shall even rise in judgment against the generation of Amor and Bereth and all those that spring from them. It came to pass that Shem marched with an army to Babel and overtook Nimrod in battle. The sword of Shem rent Nimrod asunder. Afterwards, his whore found one part of his body and set up obelisk in honor of that foul thing she found. She kept it by her and even did unspeakable acts with it. Seven years passed and she was torn apart by wild pigs in the desert. To this day, we have the saying, in the desert, the night bitch is there trying to find her resting place. She became known as Lilith. Before she died, she gave birth to a son named uh, Tribetha, for he was third in the house to rule the heathens of Babel. Tribetha did the evil that his father Nimrod did before him and even spread his seed among the sons of Aser. The armies of Tribetha searched for Shem but could not find him, for his bloodline was vast, and Yahuwah hid him in the mountain of which was later called Sinai. There Shem scribed the books which had been taken upon the ark so that they may be uh, preserved. The Book of the Two Pearls, Chapter 2. There she is in the flesh, the original whore of Babylon, finally introduced into the Babel narrative, Semiramis. 
do you see what they did there? They showed you that Semi that Semi Ramus was the daughter of Shem by adding an H and naming her Shemi Ramus. Simply adorable. It took me several repeated reads to truly appreciate the scope of what all is happening. On the surface, even this story takes the Nimrod narrative at face value. There's only one Nimrod accounted for rather than three or four, but not all is at a total loss. I'm detecting coded messages. Allow me to take you through it. According to this account, Semiramis, or are we going with Shemiramis now, was originally handed off to Cush in marriage. Cush was Ham's eldest son, as you guys know. Their offspring was the original Nimrod, whom I have also shown you to be the giant Nimroth. That makes the most sense because Nimrod Nimroth was the one who introduced the worship of fire, but then included the magical rites of incest as part of the equation. Incest with his sisters and his daughters, as well as his own mother. Shem tells Nimrod that he would have a name change in as little as three days. The Nephel in Nephel uh, Rashim reminds me of Nephilim, whereas the Rashim may be Rishaim in Hebrew, meaning wicked. So, like, wicked Nephilim. I'm thinking the three days is the coded part. The Book of the Two Pearls is a repeated offender of using numbers to say something different than meets the eye. It's likely how they pushed material past the censors. Notice how the three days, uh, three days passed, pass, and nothing happens? I'm thinking the three days very likely could be a representation of the three generations. Nimrod, Nimroth, Nimrod, Bayless, Nimrod, Ninus. It's why two whole years pass before Avram arrived, possibly indicating we're gazing in now upon his child or grandchild. If the message was misunderstood, then Nimrod, Nimroth would have seen its unfulfillment as a sign of weakness, perhaps recipe for a sin increase. I confess to not having another single text, whereas Shem directly confronts Nimrod. Uh, their meeting, however, is proposed to us in the Aramaic Targum. This is what we read in Genesis 10.9 of the Jerusalem. He was mighty in hunting and in sin before Yahuwah, for he was a hunter for the sons of men in their languages. And he said to them, leave the judgments of Shem. Well, that's interesting. And adhere to the judgments of Nimrod. On this account, it is said, as Nimrod the mighty, mighty in hunting and in sin before Yahuwah. Seems like Shem's confrontation had already happened by this point. Nimrod made his bed and was more than willing to lie in it. With his mother. The fulfillment of Shem's judgment simply didn't happen during Nimrod Nimrod's lifetime. That's my suggestion. As prophecies often go. My four Nimrod's theory would have Nimrod Ninus, the grandchild of Nimrod Nimroth, being cut up into pieces at the badass samurai-like skills of Shem. He later had a son named Tribetha, and notice what it says. This text seems to misrepresent the greater wealth of evidence by making Tribetha the third in the house to rule the heathens of Babel when he should be the fourth. Perhaps we are dealing with a mistranslation. It happens all the time. This third could be referring to Ninus, uh, his father, or it may simply be an oops by a scribe at one time or another. More purposeful confusion is another option. I don't know what the text originally said in its native tongue. Try not to let that ruin the day, though, seeing as how the Book of the Two Pearls appears to present the multi-generation Nimrod theory upon close inspection. I'll take that as a win. Attached to the birth of Tribetha is the idea that it was a miraculous conception via Nimrod, her husband, uh, the husband of Semiramis. It's part of what makes the worship of fire, divine fire, so important to the Madonna and child narrative. The father became the child, but only through the physical womb of the wife-mother. Uh, Shemi Remus is initiated 
I'm sorry, Shimmerimus initiated Tribetha, the fourth and last Nimrod, into the Phallus cults by marrying him. But that came only after Shimmerimus went about the earth setting up obelisks in honor of the members she was already performing unspeakable acts with. This, is, uh, this may sound unpleasant, but this is the Christmas conversation we find ourselves in the midst of. Uh, the question here is whether it would even be possible for Shemiramis to marry four consecutive lovers, father to son to son to son, over a thousand-year timeline. I'd say not. But then look at what else the text states. She became known as Lilith. Most people would read that and presume she became Lilith at a later hour, but that may not be the case at all. Cain was already instructing Nimrod and he was a Ruach. And now that I think about it, the Ford Nimrod theory plays out cyclically as the Babylonian mysteries would entail. Therefore, the very mention of Lilith implies far more than meets the eye. She lived on, though even the wild pigs in the wilderness may have been spiritual nature. Lilith comes across to me as a succubus, the female form of an incubus. Plenty of historians speak of Ninus and Semiramis, and by the sounds of it, they were quite the pair. Very few make the connection with the biblical Nimrod, but they needn't have to. Overall, the picture becomes clearer and clearer as to who we are dealing with here. One of the writings I stumbled upon were those of the first century Roman historian Diodorus, and he claimed the great mound of Ninus could still be seen along the Euphrates River to his day. And look at how he describes it. Semiramis buried Ninus in the precinct of the palace and erected over his tomb a very large mound, nine stades high and ten wide, as a guy named Tisias uh, says. Is anyone aware of the measurements attributed to a, uh, is that a state or a stady? Uh, the, it might be a stady, like, yeah. The Greek Olympic Games sponsored a foot race called the Stade, and it was 192 meters long. That's 630 feet. Now do a conversion on that. The mound which Semiramis built over Nimrod Ninus was a height supposedly of 5,670 feet. Is that right? Quite the project. Uh, Semiramis moved a mountain for Loverboy, literally. I'm guessing it had something to do with the flood of Babylon. It may have even been a mud flood event. The only insight I was given derives from Jerome. Here is what he has to say about it. Semiramis, the wife of Ninus, ruled over the Assyrians, of whom innumerable things are recounted. She also held Asia and constructed mud banks because of a flood, restoring very many of the cities of Babylonia. Well, I'll be. Sounds to me like Babylon was given yet another reset event after Shem killed Nimrod Ninus. That's something which the people of Babel would have been used to by this point, seeing as how the Tower of Babel is listed among their house of cards. But then there is the wind flood. Have you ever heard of that one? Here's what we read. Elohim determined to put an end to the custom of idolatry, and he made the wind flood. He opened the storehouses of the winds and set free the whirlwinds and hurricanes and sent a blast of wind over all the earth. This wind swept through Babylonia and dashed the idols against each other and smashed them and threw it, and then it threw down upon them the buildings, buildings in which they had stood, and piled the ruins and high mounds above the images and the devils that dwelt in them. The cities of Yer and Eric, or Yerik, were laid waste, and their sites were only known from the huge mounds of rubbish which were piled up by the wind flood. The Book of the Cave of Treasures. 
Ur is the city which Abraham was living in. Elohim called him out of it, and now you know why. He was a prophet going around telling everyone that Elohim had abhorred idols, but they didn't listen. Erech is another interesting name. It is known as the second city of Nimrod, and just as importantly, identified with Uruk. That's the very city which Gilgamesh resided in. We haven't gotten there yet, so I will have to starve off making yet another Nimrod connection. Despite this wind flood reportedly being worldwide, uh, being a worldwide reset event, it appears as though Babylon was specifically targeted. Seems like Semiramis had her work cut out for her, finding enough slaves to hold a broom and the others a dustpan. It would also explain why Nimrod fell out of power during the Genesis 13 war, the event leading up to the Sodom and Gomorrah fire judgment. His kingdom was in ruins. Still didn't stop Semiramis, the old praying mantis, from doing her duty as the national succubus, apparently. Uh, check out this quote. Let's see if I can read that. Well, you know what? I'm not going to read that. Let's see what my commentary says. According to James George Fraser in The Golden Bow, A Study in Magic and Religion, the burial mounds to be found all across Western Asia can be attributed to who? To Semiramis. She was mating with the most handsomest of her soldiers, only to have them buried alive afterwards, soon as the deed was done. For God and country, I guess. That story about Madonna sleeping with vanilla ice and then having his career come to a sudden and swift end afterwards is starting to make more sense now. All right, the next section is called The Son of Nimrod. I call, uh, this is on page 34 if you need caught up. I call him the son of Nimrod, despite there being three other potential Nimrods, because I consider him to be the fourth and last Nimrod. It will ultimately be up to you to decide who the most important of the Nimrods are, though it is the final Nimrod, the infant, which is most often depicted in art across the ancient world. The reason being is that he was said to be conceived miraculously within the womb of his mother through the immortal rays of his father, Nimrod, who had now quite literally become the sun. Um, there's your sun worship right there. We have already met this child, uh, Tribetha, though most of the world know him by another name, Tammuz. Tammuz. In a short while, I will show you uh, why I believe he was also recorded as Nimrod. It only makes sense that he would be. After the death of Nimrod, uh, Shemiramis conceived, uh, convinced the world that Nimrod had indeed inseminated her with seed, resulting in child. This is why incest was so important to the magical ritual. The son became an avatar for his father, the son. In this way, Semiramis may have justified her marrying the child, because she was really continuing her love affair with the pre-existent man she'd already loved. Tammuz was reincarnated Nimrod. In other words, Tammuz was a reincarnated Nimrod Ninus, who in turn may have been a reincarnated Nimrod Bayless, a reincarnated Nimrod Nimroth. You guys get the point. Even Nimroth may have been a reincarnated Gilgamesh, but I haven't yet gotten to that part. The cycle plays out with the Christmas as well as the Easter story. They are both dependent upon the other, and no, neither one can be found in the Bible. Correction. Easter can be found in the Bible, just not in the New Testament. You will have to look up Ezekiel 8.14 for yourself and tell me what you read. Christmas is in there too, now that I think about it. Jeremiah 10.1-5, Ezekiel 
Uh, in both cases, they were celebrated by the people of Yasharo, but not by the prophets or the set apart for them uh, as well. Before addressing the Christmas side of things, which entails the birth of the father, we might as well cover Easter, seeing as how the son of Nimrod is what's ultimately being discussed. Here's the short of it. The Semiramis' origin story involved a descent from the moon in a moon egg that splashed down into the Euphrates on the first full moon after the spring equinox. Now that I think about it, that sounds like uh, a storyline that NASA has yet to tap into uh, on one of their return trips. To those who worshipped her, particularly the Persians, she became known as Ishtar, pronounced Easter to us moderns, and her moon egg became, well, you guys know, Ishtar's egg. After her son Tammuz was killed by a wild boar, ironically while on a hunting trip, the hunter became the hunted. Shemiramis Ishtar proclaimed a 40 days of mourning in which the people of the land were to eat no meats. Afterwards, they were to celebrate Tammuz by killing and eating their Ishtar ham. And there are rumors afloat that rabbits and eggs come into the equation. But I've left out the most important part. Celebrations would have been deemed meaningless had she not first descended to the underworld. And I should probably mention there you could see the 40 days of mourning uh, Lent leading up to Easter. For the longest time, scholars assumed the Semiramis Ishtar narrative was a love story. A love story regarding her son and her lover. A love story so profound that she wandered to the furthest depths of the earth in search for him after his demise. It wasn't until recent decades, however, that new tablets were discovered in Mesopotamia. And really, we're at the, at the, in the cradle of the cradle of society, haha. But in the cradle of really understanding these Mesopotamian texts, there are so many Sumerian texts out there that haven't been read, read translated, probably thousands of them, um, all with stories to tell. Tablets which tell the fuller story. Though Nimrod may have employed his mother for his own immortal rights, uh, Semiramis Ishtar wasn't a fool and she had her own schemes. She too wanted immortality. Also, the earth wasn't enough for her. If she couldn't rule heaven, then she'd rule the netherworld. The picture which has emerged seems to be one which has Semiramis Ishtar traveling to the netherworld so as to dethrone her sister, uh, Erish Kigo. Undeterred by her sister's warnings, the goddess passed through seven gates, though at each one she was required to leave a garment or an ornament behind, leaving her naked and defenseless in the end. For her uh, chutzpah, sitting down butt naked on her sister's throne, according to this story, I'm not making that up, uh, the Anunnaki sentenced her corpse to be hung from a nail. Immediately afterwards, all sexual intercourse throughout the universe came to an abrupt halt. I have already shown you in my Serpent Seed paper the very moments when this event appears to have occurred in his story. It happened twice, actually. The first in Mitraim, that would be Egypt. The second in Canaan. They both involve Abraham telling Nimrod's various keen children that Sarai was his sister, thereby resulting in a plague. The plague, in case you were wondering, was erectile dysfunction. It fits the Semiramis and Tammuz timeline like a glove. If you need proof that I'm not making this up and, uh, and aren't remotely interested in reading the report for yourself, then here is the short of it. This comes from Tales of the Patriarchs. I prayed to Yahuwah for justice. I wanted Yahuwah to raise up against the Pharaoh and protect Sarai. 
Elohim listened and sent an evil ruach to the entire household that prevented the Pharaoh from having sexual relations with Sarai for the two years that they were together. At the end of the two years, uh, the the Genesis account makes it sound like it's overnight. But here, this and this, I should always back this up. Tales of the Patriarchs uh, comes out of the Dead Sea Scrolls. At the end of the two years, the plagues and afflictions were so great that magicians and healers were sent for. They were, of course, ineffective, and they all soon left. Um, Hercanos went to me pleading for help against the plague because I had been seen in a dream. I agreed to help only when my wife Sarai is returned to me. The Pharaoh heard this and confirmed, confronted me, asked, himself asking why I lied, saying that Sarah is my sister. He agreed to give Sarah back, and I exorcised the evil spirit from the house of Pharaoh. Uh, it should say Sarai there. And the Pharaoh swore to me that he had not touched Sarai while they were together and gave her gifts of gold, silver, linen, and purple dyed clothing. Sarah and I were then led out of Egypt. I, uh, Sarai, Lot, and his wife took our flocks and the gold and silver I had received and traveled together. The Tales of the Patriarchs, uh, 19 through 20. The purpose of the plague was to keep Pharaoh from having sexual relations with Sarai. Everyone wanted to strike a deal with the matriarch of Yashiril, it seems. Sarai was beautiful, probably excelling over Simuramis in the looks department, and could have been an Elohim upon the earth uh, had she set her willingness to the task. It seems to me that Sarai is the dual opposite of Semiramis in every regards. She wasn't a whore, number one, though Hasatan willed it upon her. The Sumerian Anunnaki, uh, Enki, allowed Semiramis Isis to be resurrected, but only if a law enforcing the uh, conservation of souls could be met. Semiramis Isis needed to find another person worthy to take her place, but who could that be? Especially if she were already an immortal. And so the goddess scoured the world seeking for someone, anyone, who might replace her. But everyone she came across was mourning her death. All but one, that is. It wasn't until she discovered her husband, Tammuz, dressed in rich clothing and sitting on her throne, that she knew what needed to be done. The trade-off. Well, well, well. Having mommy issues isn't all perks. Especially when it comes down to a woman scorned. Sami Ramus Ishtar is starting to look more and more like a praying mantis or a black widow. Pleasure herself with seed and then chew on the head and chew on the head of her lover afterwards. And we read this in Ezekiel. He said also unto me, Turn yet again, and you shall see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of Yahuwah's house which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Looks like women were still weeping for him, even during the prophet Ezekiel's time. It's the Ishtar Bible verse, which I had referenced earlier. How many of these women um, offered their children a sacrifice to Ashtoreth, I wonder? Perhaps the smoke was still ascending in the nearby valley of Hinnom while they were weeping for Tammuz. The Anunnaki, you will hopefully recall, are the watchers connecting us to the spiritual aspect of the wild pigs killing Tammuz in the wilderness. Though even Semiramis, it seems, was offed by them, the pigs. Also, the eating of ham on Ishtar Day should have other connotations by now, seeing as how we know the demons make pigs the matter of a joyride in Matith Yahu, Matthew 8, 28-34. You are what you eat. 
And anyways, if you need this spilled out for you, Semiramis Ishtar's descent to the underworld not only depicts her death, but the end of the fertility cycle on Earth. The return to the upper world is her resurrection, springtime, the return of life on Earth. Renewed life, however, comes at a price. It requires death. In this case, the son of Nimrod. Herein, the practice of human sacrifice can be found. And uh, as I pointed out, the, the Middle Eastern laws uh, were very much an idea of a, a life for a life, and which is what Semiramis did to preserve her own, which makes her, again, the complete opposite of Messiah. If you still need this spilled out for you, Semiramis Ishtar made a human sacrifice of her son. We are told a wild pig committed the deed, but why must we, why must we always get stuck in the exoteric way of thinking? And so I will ask you to take another look at Nimrod's death in the book of Yashar. Only I have extended the passage by a few verses this time around. And Nimrod and two of his men that were with him came to the place where they were when Esau started suddenly from his lurking place and drew his sword and hastened and ran to Nimrod and cut off his head. And Esau fought a desperate fight with the two men that were with Nimrod. And when they called out to him, Esau turned to them and smote them to death with his sword. And all uh, the mighty men of Nimrod, who had left him to go to the wilderness, heard the cry at a distance, and they knew the voices of those two men, and they ran to know the cause of it, when they found their king and the two men that were with him lying dead in the wilderness. And when Esau saw the mighty men of Nimrod coming at a distance, he fled and thereby escaped. And Esau took the valuable garments of Nimrod, which Nimrod's father had bequeathed to Nimrod, and with, uh, with which Nimrod prevailed over the whole land. And he ran and concealed them in his house. Yashar 27, 7-19. Ah, there it is, Esau. The carpet of a man himself committing the deed. He offered the person who I am suggesting as being the very last Nimrod, Tammuz. For all I know, Nimrod's mighty men caught the unseemly side of Esau's shaggy rear end as he made for the hedges and thought a wild boar had managed the beheading. You never really know. Either way, I'm willing to bet Hasatan played his part in the scheme. The reason why is the garment he received. It's the same one that Yehuda clothed Adam and uh, Chua in, or Eve, after they were caught in the nude. I'm not getting into the finer details again or what I'm... Uh, referencing when i i'm sorry i am not getting into the finer details again or where i am referencing the fact that it was the serpent's skin rather than a ram's up until the flood the garment had been passed down through the sons of shem to noah but afterwards it was stolen by ham and it seems to me that the garment chose its wearer well look at what else happened on that very day on the day that abraham died yaakov dressed pottages of lentils and was going to confirm uh, comfort his father, Yitchak, and Esau came from the wilderness exhausted, for in that day he had committed five transgressions. He had worshipped with strange worship. He had shed innocent blood. He had gone in into a betrothed damsel. He had denied the life of the world to come and had despised his birthright, Genesis twenty five twenty nine Targum. What are the odds that Abraham and Nimrod would die on the same day? The only act more ironic is learning how longtime rival and Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston served as pallbearer at U.S. Commanding General William Tecumseh Sherman's funeral, only to catch a cold and die of pneumonia. But then the incident in question happened on the very day when Esau lost his birthright. If what I am suggesting is true, 
that Nimrod Tammuz is the person being referred to here, and that Semiramis Ishtar required the sacrifice of her son, then what is being described in the Targa may take on deeper meaning. The shedding of innocent blood obviously refers to Nimrod, but why was he innocent exactly? I thought Nimrod was a tyrant. It seems to me that he was undeserving of the reason for why Esau killed him. The strange worship and the sexual intercourse with a betrothed damsel probably uh, has something to do with each other, or they probably have something to do with each other, being a ritual. Strange worship, of course, refers to an idol or an Elohim other than Yahuwah, and may even include strange fire. It needn't take a flying leap to speculate Asherah Ishtar as the goddess of his devotion, which would make denying the world to come all the more obvious if it was the harvest cycle needing renewed. Hope you guys are following. But in a way, Esau received his blessing. The age of the Nimrods had come to an end, but the empire of the Romans, who culminated his story and ultimately descended through Esau, had begun. I'll be talking a little bit more about that next week if you tune in. All right, we are on page 41 if you need caught up. I hope you guys are doing well. We will get through this. Here we go. The Christmas Connection. Easter has already been covered, and you will tell me I did this in reverse order. But did I really? Perhaps you were not paying attention, hmm? The mysteries of Babylon are cyclical, cyclical like all the other mystery religions. Ishtar Day may meet the end of the story, but it is also the beginning making the winter solstice the other bookend. And it also falls nine months after, conveniently. Even Hebrew scripture follows the same model, only Yahuwah has his own feast days to celebrate, and Christianity has conveniently snubbed them in favor of the one Semiramis invented. Among the Christmas's pagan crowd, many go around claiming that Christmas is Nimrod's birthday, which may or may not be true. I highly doubt all four Nimrods were born on the same day. And uh, even if there was only one of them, I wasn't born yet to observe his delivery from the womb, nor have I gotten my hands on a birth certificate. Actually, there's a lot of different Elohim and gods that all claim to be born on that day, but uh, there's a reason for it. If the purpose is to pull people away from the pagan holy day, such explanations seem like a desperate overreach, if you ask me. And more than anything, an exoterically dull explanation for the spirit of the season. The mystery religions did not spread all over the world simply to celebrate his birthday. Come on. A birthday is intended to worship or even deify the self anyways. There is a deeper spiritual reality going on here, an esoteric one, and it is far more magical than birthday cake and candles. And it involves the reincarnated relationship between father and son as born in the womb of his mother-wife, and it goes something as follows. All right, let's see if my eyes can read this tonight. Uh, after Nimrod's death, uh, Semiramis promoted the belief that he was a god. She claimed that she saw a full-grown evergreen tree spring out of the roots of a dead tree stump, symbolizing the springing forth of new life for Nimrod. On the anniversary of his birth, she said Nimrod would visit the evergreen tree and leave gifts under it. His birthday fell on the winter solstice at the end of December. That comes from Bible tools, by the way. Sounds like an, a nice Bible tool uh, source. They they talk a lot about it in there. I wonder if the Bible tools people still celebrate Christmas. After Nimrod's death, Semiramis claimed that she saw a full-grown evergreen tree spring out of the roots of a dead tree stump, a sign that her husband lived. Afterwards, Nimrod would visit the said tree and leave presents under it, sounding an awful lot like a jolly fat man at the moment. 
Oh, look, Nimrod Ninus, Nimrod Nimbroth has arrived while you slept and left shiny packaging for you. Another thing I'm starting to wonder is if Semiramis was the CEO of a major corporation. The shed may be full of tools of very nature, but by no means was Semiramis numbered among the dull ones. She didn't become the first empress of the post-Diluvian world for nothing. Convincing her subjects that the child was in fact a reincarnated Nimrod was never intended to be a one-time affair. Her reign as well as Loverboy's continues to this day, it seems. I am fully convinced that there is a truth to the story in so much that Nimrod was a terrestrial Ruach, just as Semiramis became Lilith, making the spirit of the season very real. What the normies needed was a yearly reminder, which is why Winter Solstice celebrations employs, uh, employ the evergreen. Because unlike the yearly shedding of leaves come each autumn, an evergreen is present throughout the cycle. After the biblical fall feast come to an end, the year dies and awaits rebirth with the lighting of the first of seven candles on the menorah. The evergreen, though, lives on. And then we read this here. Saturnalia, the ancient Roman winter festival honoring Saturn. Uh, we already saw who Saturn was. The god of uh, agriculture, that'd be Nimrod, is where we first hear of decorating the tree with pieces of metal. And now we see how Saturn was the reason for the season. Does he really need another introduction? We have already encountered the first Nimrod before. Nimrod the giant, the tower builder. The Romans continued honoring him during the winter festival, and we needn't hire a connected dot specialist, though that's what I am, uh, to understand what the Roman Catholic Church did with it. By the way, I'm cutting those, these quotes out so that you can't in the very least claim I'm the one making them up. And what have we learned in all of this? The shiny trinkets and pigeon glitter we find on the evergreen was a Saturnalia thing. There are other historical facts I could pull, like how the Egyptians worshipped Ra with the evergreen tree, and we all know the reason why. It was, an, it was an appreciation of the man, the myth, and the legend. The pharaohs were, after all, the children of Nimrod. A little while ago, I presented the passage regarding Shem confronting Nimrod and then eventually dicing him asunder with the sword. At the time, I said I'd manage the entire passage without any interruptions, and though I mostly followed through with the claim, it wasn't entirely true. There's more. I, I like several course meals and was saving it for a moment such as this one. So here you go. Without interruption this time, hopefully, continuing on. When Shim was 600 years old, he made a testament unto his people. He said, my days are coming to an end, and I must prophesy with Yahuwah, uh, what Yahuwah has revealed unto me. In the last days, Elohim will send his word to die. Many will obey the word and wash themselves in its blood. However, Nimrod will return with his whore on top of man and cause kings to commit whoredoms in the name of the word, which they will replace with another. Spectres will ride the spirits of men and hurl them into the abyss. This will occur many days hence. Also, my people will fight another like unto Nimrod before this. His name will be the manifestation of an Elohim. The leader of my people will be Yehuda. The children and their mother will die because of Pigul. The same will also come to pass in the last days. The people of uh, Bugbear. <laughs> I need to look up who the people of Bugbear is. I really don't know. I didn't have time for that. Uh, will also be taken over by adulterous men who will spread another word not heard of before that time. Another congregation will profane the name of Yahuwah into a strange sound never heard of before. Then I will send a strong arm, but he will also fall because of the sin of Nimrod. And then, of course, 
pay attention to this. My word will be tampered with by those bishops who think to know better. Hmm. It will deceive many and place my word into infancy each year cycle when the year is dead. I wonder what day that might be. In the beginning, Elohim made the heavens and the earth. The earth became formless and empty, and darkness was upon the shaft of the abyss. It's now really interesting now that I uh, think about that. They call that the shaft of the abyss. And the spirit of Yahuwah hovered over, the, hovered over the surface of the seas. And Elohim said, let there be light. And there was the word, the light of men. Men were in darkness, and the light overpowered the darkness, but men saw it not. I, Shem, command that you follow this light and shun the false light of Nimrod. Do not worship the east nor carve trees in the name of Elohim. I wonder who might be doing that, carving trees in the name of Elohim. I, I don't know. Maybe if we put our heads together, we can figure that one out. I give you, my children, this prophecy to ponder and keep. Remember the days are coming when Yahuwah will send a lawgiver to deliver you from the mouth of a Leviathan. Hmm, that's interesting too. My words will help you deal with the coming trial upon the children of Eber. Go, I must die now. Be of good cheer and remember what I have done to the hunter of Babel. These things Shem said to his children and he died. He was gathered to his fathers and his children wept for seven days. The book of the two pearls, chapter two. When I die, I want an epic bed speech like that. I want to end it with me saying like, go now, my children, I must die. That's, I think I'm going to end my speech. Before commenting any further, I will readily admit that not everything about the LX X timeline blends in perfectly with the Masoretic. I never promised to solve every equation, and Shim's testimony in the Book of the Two Pearls certainly isn't one of them. What he does happen to drop in her lap, however, is shocking. Shim, will, uh, Shim well understood that Nimrod was the antagonist to Yehusha Habashiach, the word of Yahuwah, not simply once but until the end of time. Because the mysteries of Nimrod is cyclical. It cannot be undone until creation itself is reset with a brand new creation week. Many have commented upon the similarities between Semiramis' descent into Sheol with Yahusha's conquering of death once and for all. Hers was for pointedly different purposes, though. Her own preservation for starters. Shem says the confusion would be intentional. Bishops and scribes would tamper with the word and blend uh, him with the Nimrod narrative so that men would ultimately worship a different Ruach. Part of the agenda would be to have Yahusha HaMashiach cyclically reborn in his infancy whenever the year is dead. As if it couldn't be any more obvious, Shem straight up connects the carving of trees in the name of Elohim with the worship of Nimrod. I didn't quote from Yirmiyahu because the Christmas tree people will make every excuse in the world, but it's rather difficult arguing with this one. Shem mentioning being delivered from the mouth of Leviathan is what gives this text credibility in my mind. How many people do you know who've heard the pre-Diluvian Leviathan connection before? Enoch's contemporaries knew all about the entrance way to Sheol, but today forget about it. The worship of fire hadn't happened yet. Sure, Shem could have prophesied about the upcoming swap from water to fire, but remember now that Nimrod is the one who figured it out. My favorite part, however, is where Shem mentions the law saving people from Leviathan. Right there, Christians who have done away with the Torah because they are worshiping lawless Nimrod and calling him Jesus are having a meltdown, I'm sure. Well, here is another Shem observation. He said not to confuse the light of creation with the darkness of Nimrod. So compare. 
At that time, Nimrod came and established the city of Ur, which is the city of light. For he yet retained his determination to build a city to rival the city of Elohim, that the light and power might center in him. When I appeared before King Nimrod, he was seated upon his throne in all his glory, but it was as darkness to me. The writings of Abraham 2, uh, 7 and 39.1. And I just thought of this. Remember now, uh, this city of light was destroyed. Uh, it, we never read that in any biblical text, but we have records of uh, of Semiramis having to do the cleanup job of a mud flood event or a flood and the wind flood as well. It It was completely destroyed, the city of light. The passage derives from a different source, but as you can see, it lines up directly with what Shem was claiming with Nimrod's light. You figure Nimrod's city of light was a wintry wonderland complete with reefs, candy canes, sleigh bells, and snowmen. For all I know, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra was blaring over the speakers. The intent, as we can see, was to rival New Yerushalayim, but in a manner which the light might center within him. It's an immortality thing. The stunning contrast here is in reading how the light of Nimrod was darkness to Abraham. But how many others do you figure held the same sentiments? I know just about everyone living today would claim they can unclothe the darkness whenever they come across it, but really? They couldn't in Abraham's day, and there is nothing new under the sun. I will ask you to read the following passage, and whatever you do, do not think about Christmas trees. I repeat, do not think about Christmas trees. Christmas trees have absolutely nothing to do with this scenario. Or do they? Don't, though. Remember when Abraham smashed his father's collection of idols with an axe and then placed the axe in the hands of the largest Elohim? The passage, once again, can be found in Yasher 11.41. Yasher is an incredible book. I, I, I don't get why people want to toss this book out. It is so incredible. He told his father, Terah, that the largest idol murdered the others. Terah didn't believe him. And then we read this. And by the way, this chapter goes on and on and on for pages, so I'm sparing you. And Terah's anger was kindled against his son, Abram, when he spoke this. And Terah said to Abram, his son, in his anger, What is this tale that thou hast told? Thou speak lies to me. Apparently, Abram, uh, Abraham was a serial liar. Is there in these Elohim ruach soul or power to do all thou hast told me? Are they not wood and stone? And have I not myself made them? And canst thou speak such lies, saying that the large Elohim that was with them smote them? Is it thou that uh, didst place the hatchet in his hands, and then sayest he smote them all? Jasher 11.41. The episode uh, between Abra Abraham and Terah comes across like the worst-case scenario of a boy finding out that Santa Claus isn't real despite his father convincing him of the alternative. I know I said not to think about Christmas trees, but... It was only because you would have no other choice but to conjure one between the ears. Admit it, you were thinking about one. Unless you're a master at these sort of thought experiments. A Christmas tree is a lifeless, though illuminated thing, which we are expected to bow down to in reverence and receive presents from, when in reality, we place the presents there to begin with. Ridiculous. Really, I am repeatedly amazed at how often the Abraham narrative directly confronts the Nimrod spirit at work in his own time, as well as our own, particularly in the book of Yasher. I feel like, I almost feel like the entire book of Yasher was written with Nimrod in mind, at least a, a good segment of it. I'm, I'm, as I'm researching this, I'm finding more and more parallels with Jasher and Nimrod. Really incredible. In closing, 
there is a Christmas tree connection which nobody else has probably made. It involves their stunning comeback after the Millennial Kingdom of Messiah. Martin Luther is said to be the first to be uh, so brazen as to drag a fallen engraving an evergreen into his house and set it up as a pretty decorate piece. Seems rather rebellious, if you ask me. Who is he rebelling against? Rome, was it? Sounds like a Saturnalia lover, if you ask me. But then the Christmas tree celebration didn't even explode in England until December 23rd, 1848, when the media published a wood engraving in the London Illustrated News depicting Queen Victoria and Prince Albert worshipping Nimrod, or, or uh, I mean, the spirit of Christmas, or whatever, with five of their children. Yes, it trickled down from top management and after the mud flood, too. Founding propagandist and agent Charles Dickens had already been brought in to compare anyone with a Jew who didn't participate in the festivities with his publication of A Christmas Carol in 1843. And then in 1850, media magazines like Harper's pushed the Christmas tree idea in America, despite the Holy Day being outlawed in some areas, particularly by the Puritans in New England. By 1870, in 20 short years... Christmas became an official federal holiday when President Ulysses S. Grant willed it. So if I had more time, I could talk about um, uh, just show on record, quote after quote after quote, how uh, Christmas was it was being pushed by the uh, like the left, the, the, the far left liberals. Uh, as a deconstruction of society. It's actually quite shocking. The same sort of things we're seeing now, where they're trying to deconstruct society um, with all their schemes, the same, Christmas was being pushed in the same way, people. Same, or, same methods. In fact, some of the people who were involved in the, um, the Salem witch trials, which I believe that was a, a, a Intel hoax, uh, the same actors, I should say, involved in that, they were some of the people pushing... Uh, the Christmas narrative. Christmas as we know it today is an ancient celebration, but also very young when considering all that has come about since the mud flood. Between that event and Noah's flood, it is by no coincidence that Saturnalia was used to kick off both resets. If it is true that the Millennial Kingdom of Messiah is represented by the seven holy days of, um, of Sukkot, but also that 7,000 years of his story has already been fulfilled, then where does that place us at present? For obvious reasons, the eighth, uh, eighth great day has not been fulfilled, meaning Yahuwah has yet to enact the next creation week reset. That pits us in the dead of the year, winter, the evergreen's hour of glory. It might even be said that Satan's short season of deception fills the void between the seventh candle on the menorah and the light lighting of the first. If it can also be said that Nimrod is the spirit of Antichrist, then it couldn't be any more evident who has emerged from the abyss over the last few hundred years. All right, I've got two more sections to read, and we will get through this. This is called, Will the Real Gilgamesh Please Stand Up? And what page are we on? We are on page uh, 49. Whenever anyone thinks of Gilgamesh, they usually refer to the Epic of Gilgamesh, but I'm not talking about that Gilgamesh quite yet. Admit it. You were thinking about that one, weren't you? 
No, the subject of this paper details the multiple lies of you-know-who. And seeing as how the joint identity of he and the giant from Eureka are so often contemplated upon, I thought you should know there is an older Gilgamesh to be found in the Papyrus, a pre-Diluvian Gilgamesh, a giant who in all probability was so large that the Gilgamesh of Uruk would have been but a grasshopper to him. Also, I am suggesting that they are both the same person or entity or whatever. The pre-Diluvian Gilgamesh and the post-Diluvian one. I will ask you to withhold your questions until the end. And so, before introducing him to the class, I suppose it is a good idea to revisit Gilgamesh the giant of Uruk after all. For your convenience, I will uh, I purchased a copy of the, at the local bookshop and have given it another thorough read, something I haven't attempted since the college years. Not a typo. <laughs> I read that wrong. Actually, I wrote that right. Uh, something I haven't attempted since the college year. Not a typo. Most people recall their college years, but mine was more like a, a single year, and I have no shame in admitting that fact. No, I did not receive my doctorate in Sumerian psychology or the 19th Egyptian dynasty, if that's what you were thinking. My, indo my indoctrination is my own. Thank you very much. Nearly each and every week, I prepare a new dissertation paper for, your, for you, the reader. At this very moment, you are reading another one in case you didn't notice. Anywho, here is a sample of the first tablet stone uh, from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Step across the ancient threshold and up to the Temple of Heaven, home of Ishtar, that no king will ever undo the Epic of Gilgamesh. I, uh, Epic of Gil Gilgamesh 1, 15 through 17. I give you only three short lines, and already the pieces are coming together. The Nimrod connection, that is. The pinnacle of Nimrod worship centered upon Ishtar, and here we see a temple devoted to the Queen of Heaven. Is it the Tower of Babel? My suggestion is no, but your guess is as good as mine. Another striking comparison between the two is in Gilgamesh claiming no king will ever outdo him. Yahusha Hamashiach obviously outdid him in strides, duh. But Nimrod, as we have already established, is the antagonist in his story. If Gilgamesh isn't Nimrod, then it would be a rather lame claim, seeing as how the tablets would not be unearthed until 1839 by the British archaeologist Austin Layard. Chalk it up to another post-mud flood discovery, I guess. If he is Nimrod, however, then the claim would most certainly be true from a satanic perspective, as well as the worldview of our controllers. Jumping ahead a dozen or so lines, I bet you guys didn't think you'd be reading from um, some uh, college material tonight, the Epic of Gilgamesh, but here we are. The calf of uh, Lugal Banda is superb in strength, nursed by Nensun, the holy Aurochs. Gilgamesh the Great, magnificent and terrible, he cuts passes through the mountains, he dug wells in the hillsides, he traveled towards sunrise, crossing sea after sea, he searched in all directions for life without end, uh, the immortality. He reached through his toils the faraway Utah Napishti, that would be Noah. He rebuilt the temples that the flood had destroyed, and established the right rituals for vast humankind. Who can compete with him in kingship? and claim, like Gilgamesh, I am the king. From the day that Gilgamesh was born and named, he was two-thirds Elohim and only one-third human. He was a giant in height, 18 feet in, feet in all, and tall, and his chest was six feet broad. His feet were five feet long and twice that his leg, and the length of his stride was the same. His beard, too, was five feet long, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And review, I am of the mind that Gilgamesh and Nimrod are the same person or entity. 
But which Nimrod? I have shown you what I believe to be four separate Nimrods, physically speaking. The answer couldn't be any more obvious. The first one, Nimroth the Giant. For one, Gilgamesh describes himself as one. And, um, an 18 footer by the looks of it. Uh, one meaning a giant. He describes himself as a giant, an 18 footer. The normal human uh, leg length is just under three feet and constitutes 45% of his body height. If his feet were five feet long and his legs twice that length, then we're looking at 10 feet just for his legs. The other obvious connection is that Gilgamesh accredits himself with rebuilding, quote, the temples that the flood had destroyed, unquote telling us that he played the part of the foreman for the construction crew. Why he was accredited with the authority to do so can best be explained in the following line. He, quote, established the right rituals for vast humankind, unquote. Vast may be speaking about the people on the earth at that time, but I'm thinking he's peering down the sacred corridors of human history to come. The part regarding Gilgamesh being two-thirds Elohim and only one-third human, giving us the number 33, uh, the 33 number, may have something to do with him becoming a giant, biblically, biblically speaking. Somebody must have given him a gift card for the Anunnaki lab come Christmas, the gift that keeps on giving. The Bible names Nimrod's father as Cush, as you guys know, but then if you notice, Gilgamesh gives his father and mother other names to consider. Read lines 35 and 36 again. He claims to have been the calf of Lugal Banda, his father, and nursed by the goddess Ninsun. Her name can be translated to read Lady Wild Cow, indicating that she was the divine power behind, as well as the embodiment of, all the qualities which the herdsman wished for in his cows. Is she a feminine big bee? His father, uh, you can see a quote there from the Wikipedia, uh, it's my eyes are hurting too much to read that tonight. But that's okay, because I will explain it. His father, Lugal Banda, is probably of far more interest to this narrative. As if to confuse matters, he's mentioned in the Sumerian king list, king's list as the second king of Uruk, which furthermore claims that he ruled for an unprecedented 1,200 years. You will have to read his wiki article to see what I'm talking about. If Lugal Banda were the solitary Nimrod we were looking for, then the length of his rule alone would resolve the LXX timeline issue. It's not him, though. I'm still not convinced that Lugal Banda is his earthly father. Spiritual, maybe, but not earthly. Another text, the royal hymns of the Earth Third Period, uh, Ur-Namu and his son Shulgi describe Lugal Banda and Ninsun as their parents as well. Holy parents, though. In the same context, they call themselves the brother of Gilgamesh. Lodge brothers. And then we read how Sin Kashin, Kashid of Uruk describes the same two as his divine parents, with Lugal Banda being his choice Elohim. The mystery is further expanded upon in learning that Lugal Banda was listed in the Sumerian king list as the father of Gilgamesh, but just as importantly, Alilu. Alilu is a masculine Akkadian word for a Ruach and is related to Alu, demon. So Lugal Banda was a demon then. And being a demon, you also know what that means. He was a titan of old, maybe. In the very least, he was a terrestrial Ruakov, a son of the Watchers or of the Serpent. Maybe even the Cain we were looking for, which would explain why Nimrod Gilgamesh would list him as his, as his spiritual father. 
The same word lilu is uh, liltu or lily in the feminine, thereby directing our attention to Lilith. And what did Semiramis become again? Exactly. What a tangled web these people weaved. Look, if Gilgamesh wasn't Nimrod, then it is insolent claims such as these, claiming to be the master builder and everything, which were likely to have Nimrod show up in the story simply to beat his ass into submission. Disney and Hitler never showing up in the same room is one thing, but Nimrod and Gilgamesh avoiding contact with each other like the plague is even more suspect than a Smithsonian truck backing up to the digs site. Now that we have gotten that out of the way, we can commence with the pre-Diluvian Gilgamesh whom I had earlier mentioned. His discovery came in Qumran, making his solitary appearance in the, appearance in the Dead Sea Scrolls, namely the Book of the Giants. The text is referred to as Enoch in literature, but I am of the thought that it was originally intended for inclusion within Enoch canon all along. It's not like First Enoch is one solitary book. No, it contains four separate books. The Book of the Watchers, chapters 1 through 36. The Book of the Parables, chapters 37 through 71. The Book of the Heavenly Luminaries, chapters 72 through 82. And the Book of Dream Visions, 89 through 90. The ending chapters after 90 are a snippet from a lost book of Noah, another text altogether and can only be found in the Ethiopic version. My suggestion is that the Book of the Giants may have slid up nicely to the Book of the Watchers at one time, making for a Enochian Pentateuch. I have considered including the entire book and then making you search for his appearance, like a Nimrod version of Where's Waldo? But if you've read my report on the giant cedars of Lebanon, you'll know I love trees and wanted to save the paper. The scene is familiar to what I had to do a little plug there, you know, a little commercial for my cedars of Lebanon paper. The scene is familiar to what plays out in the Book of the Watchers, chapters 1 through 36 of First Enoch, but with a twist. Uh, Enoch had already spoken as an advocate on behalf of the Watchers in the Book of the Watchers. He was their lawyer, I guess, because they could no longer lift their eyes to behold heaven. And Yahuwah responded that there would be no redemption for them. As a follow-up, the Book of the Giants has the children of the Watchers sitting around discussing the impending flood and wondering if the disaster can be adverted. The twist is that Enoch is used once more as their lawyer or their advocate, their spokesman, and Yahuwah says the deluge issue can be resolved if they would simply repent of their sins. And so the giants sit around contemplating their choice. Repent and live, or keep on sinning and take their chances. Guess the ending. Go ahead. What do you think they ordered if the Torah was an option on the menu? Nimrod isn't the man of lawlessness for nothing. They chose vice as a virtue. And this is where we find it, right here. Gilgamesh, there he is, speaks. I am a giant, and by my mighty strength in my arm, I can vanquish anyone mortal. I have made war with them, mortals, in the past, but I am not, I am not now able to stand against my opponents who reside in heaven and dwell in holy places. And not only this, but they are in fact stronger than I am. The day of the ravening wild beast has come, and that of the wild man, as I have known, the Book of the Giants, Dead Sea Scrolls. And there he is, folks. The pre-Diluvian giants in the flesh, Gilgamesh, sitting around the campfire with other immortal Lodge brothers. Even assuming the Book of the Giants was written by the Kumon people and not copied down from an earlier epoch, then the writers clearly knew what they were doing when having Big Gil claim he was capable of standing against his opponents who reside in heaven. 
That's Nimrod talk. Or at least measuring whether he could or couldn't. Gilgamesh talk as well, but undoubtedly a Nimrod line. Likewise, if the writers are making this story up, not that I'm making that claim, I don't believe they're making it up, then another easy-peasy deduction is that they're cross-referencing their own Mesopotamian bad guy. I'm not, only, I'm not the only one making the connection. The good people of Kumon have already done it for me. The Tower of Babel is being foreshadowed just as assuredly as a throne is planned for the M of his intel operation, the Mommy Queen of Heaven. So what, a, what I am stating here is that Nimrod Gilgamesh is the same Nimrod Gilgamesh who lived before the floodwaters, the occasion in which he perished. You may be asking how it is possible that Gilgamesh could survive such an ordeal, and if so, then you totally glossed over what I just said. He perished right about the time of the floodwaters. Notice I didn't say the floodwaters did him in. I have already shown you my reasoning for that conclusion, but will soon give another reminder. Of course, I am merely speaking of the physical. Don't forget the part where he claims to be an immortal. A better way of saying the same thing is in how the Book of the Watchers explains the scenario. We've been over this passage many times, but I'll just cover this for anyone listening who may not know what I'm talking about. By now, the Nephilim, who have been born of the Ruach and of flesh, shall be called upon earth evil Ruachoth. Uh, a.k.a. demons, and on earth shall be their habitation. Evil Ruachoth shall proceed from their flesh because they were created from above, from the holy watchers, was their beginning and primary foundation. Evil Ruachoth shall they be upon earth, and the Ruachoth of the wicked shall they be called. The habitation of the Ruachoth of heaven shall be in heaven, but upon earth shall be the habitation of terrestrial Ruachoth, who are born on earth. The Ruachoth of the Nephilim are like clouds, which shall oppress, corrupt, fall, content, and bruise upon earth. They shall cause lamentation. No food shall they eat, and they shall be thirsty. They shall be concealed and shall rise up against the sons of men and against women, for they come forth during the days of slaughter and destruction. Book of Enoch 15. Gilgamesh falls under the terrestrial Ruachoth category. Terrestrial means he was created upon the earth, not to be confused with every other living soul who's created by the Father in heaven, which we kind of already went over tonight. Yet another explanation goes as follows. If we die and return to Yahuwah of Ruachoth, it's proof in the pudding that we were pre-existent in heaven because our Father made us. Gilgamesh, however, was not pre-existent. No, he was created upon the earth and therefore determined to wander the earth as a demon ruling over those who did happen to orig originate in heaven and making certain that as many of them as possible get tossed into the dead man's party with him. As a reminder, here is the passage where I figure Gilgamesh, the original Gilgamesh, mind you, and not the second one died. Um, this comes from, of course, the book of, uh, the, the book of King Og again. Then Ogaius entered the blood pit of B of the earth and Ogaius stepped forward and pulled at the head and skull of Nimrod as King Og pulled at his ankles and Nimrod's neck gave way. Worms, other things, dragon of old, pit of fire, preparation, book of King Og. I know it says Nimrod and not Gilgamesh, but come on, they are both so obviously the same person. How long are you going to keep fighting this? It's so convenient that Nimrod wasn't sitting around that campfire with Gilgamesh, plotting their conquest of heaven. I mean, it's not like Og didn't end up in at least one of their stories. Can't claim Og and Nimrod are the same person. This whole situation may have more to do with whether or not Nimrod ever went by the name of Nimrod, either before or after the flood reset. That much is still up for question. 
Seems like just about everyone knew him as any other name but Nimrod. Come to think of it, Nimrod probably hated the name Nimrod. Remember Mad Dog Tannen in Back to the Future Part 3? Everybody called him Buford, except the history books if they wanted to live to breakfast. Should somebody slip up and call him Mad Dog to his face, they'd get drugged through town and strung up at the courthouse. High time for a hang. What do you suppose Nimrod would do? He had that sacred fire out back. Og was probably prodding him. His hatred towards Yahuwah, uh, Og's that is, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, and the people of Yasharel seemed only matched by his disdain for Gilgamesh. In claiming that he'd killed the dude before the floodwaters could do its job, he was elevating himself above even the Most High Elohim, because the deluge didn't finish him, Nimrod, you see. And then he says this, Nimrod is the circumcised Nephilim who killed us all. Oh, that I could shatter his teeth in Nimrod's mouth again and break the teeth of his half-loin Nephilim sons, Jotun, and the satisfaction of killing Nimrod's sons whose names will not be mentioned to blot them from the earth, the Book of Og. What did you learn from that, aside from Nimrod being circumcised? It was a close call with a battle axe, in case you were wondering. Og never could let that one go. Nimrod was Nephilim, and that is no small deal. I mean, it was implied in that Gilgamesh was a giant, but now the two separate puzzle pieces should be easier to connect. Gilgamesh and Nimrod are the same person. Pre-Diluvian Nimrod wasn't exactly a nobody either. See for yourself. And this is, again, the Book of Og. When Nimrod became ruler of his portion of the Great Land, he then demanded circumcision throughout all of his Nephilim kingdom. I, Og, circumcised no males in my land. The Rephaim keep, kept their members intact. Think I'm trying to be clever with all this circumcised roasting? There really aren't many passages in the entire book attributed to Og, void of a penis obsession. Not to mention the blasphemy. Uh, I don't rec I'm not promoting this book. It's a very blasphemous book, but it gives them uh, very good information. Nimrod was ruler over a great swath of land. That's the point I was trying to make. Og refers to it as his Nephilim kingdom. Some may think he's describing Abraham's Mesopotamia, but I disagree. The ending to this book doesn't simply involve the flood. No, something called the Hundred Thousand Giants War happened. It involves Nimrod's boys throwing it down with Og and the Rephaim while the rest of the world perishes. At what other point in his story did that happen exactly? So, Nimrod Gilgamesh was reincarnated then from Nimrod Gilgamesh? You want to know? Something like that, I guess. Maybe. Not really sure. I mean, my proposed for Nimrod's theory, beginning with the Tower Builder and ending with Tammuz, functions within the Mysteries of Babylon model in that the son is the father. But even that is predicated upon the original Gilgamesh being a terrestrial ruach and the son of a watcher. Call it occult magic or simply a miracle science, what I'm not implying here is that Nimrod was simply possessed by the Ruach of a pre-Diluvian giant. We've got plenty of people all across this motionless plain who are possessed by those people. No, the Nimrod success story relies heavily upon occult discipline of the highest attainable degree. There is no other way that I can think to say this except that Nimrod became Nimrod. All right, I've got one more section, and then we're going to be done. This last section, Gilgamesh and the Wild Man, I wanted to develop this so much further, um, and I had pages more I was writing, and I just cut it. 
because it just it was taking me off in directions that were a bit distracting from just covering the basics here. Um, and that's what we're doing tonight. We're covering some of the basics. So this is called Gilgamesh and the Wild Man. I need another quick drink of coffee. I'm going to hold out, I think. I'm going to make it. He was a wild man, you know. Gilgamesh. Pre-diluving Gilgamesh, that is. Not sure if you noticed that part. It's a line in the Book of the Giants. I didn't say anything at the time, mostly because I wanted to see if you were paying attention. The good news is that I won't make you thumb back through the pages in search of his confession. Here it is again. The day of the ravening wild beast has come, and that of the wild man, as I, Gilgamesh, am known. Supposing some of you haven't the faintest clue what a wild man is, I will explain. Or perhaps you are thinking he is describing the person you are married to. The wild man, though they are also referred to as the woodwoes, frequently show up uh, in the oldest literature available to us. They are often depicted as giants and always covered with hair. Their defining character trait is that they live out in the mountains, completely removed from human civilization. Some of you are still thinking I'm describing your husband. That may be, but I am inclined to believe the wild man and the Sasquatch are the same entity. I have also come to uh, prepared with illustrations from my personal collection. So I've got like, I don't know, three pages here. You can scroll through those on your spare time. I am on page 63. An entire hour of my life has passed from the moment I began scrapbooking those illustrations for you. I hope you enjoyed the presentation. They have been laid out in a particular order so as to lead towards inevitable tragedy. And what do we see? Wild men are solitary creatures, mostly keeping to themselves, living in what appears to be tribes or family units. Mothers hold infants, but also fathers are willing to defend their children to the death. Attempts are made to civilize them. They are given clothes and told to blend in. Usually, though, they are put on display or forced to perform tricks. The relationship goes downhill when the wild men have the bright idea of capturing women, uh, human women, perhaps in retaliation to the loss of their women. But who really knows? The hunt begins. There is even a persecution of the species as a whole and that they are rounded up and tossed into the flames. To sum all of this up, yes, I believe the wild men existed and were known in past moments of his story. I wanted to get into a whole section about the days of Noah and how we see the wild man making a stunning appearance again um, at the very end. Uh, and they may be coming back now. Who really knows? Uh, but that's a whole other thing. Pre-Diluvian Gilgamesh was one of them, but then supposing you've brushed up on your ancient literature, you will recall how the second post-Diluvian Gilgamesh was close, closely associated with the wild man as well. The epic of Gilgamesh has the king openly bidding with any woman whose mere sight aroused him. Virgin, betrothed, or married, it mattered not. The entire scene of the epic of Gilgamesh plays out like a repeat performance of the Watcher's debacle. It runs in the family, I guess. After their cries were heard by the local Elohim, the, the cries of the women, a wild man named Enkidu was fashioned from the earth so as to confront and ultimately defeat the wicked giant king. The first person to encounter the wild man is a hunter. Enkidu springs his trap so as to protect the forest animals. Uh, another repeated theme of the, um, the wild men that they're like the caretakers of the animals. After reporting these episodes to Gilgamesh, the hunter is instructed to lure the wild man into a trap. And here's how the scene plays out. Back to the epic of Gilgamesh again. The hunter went and brought with him Shamhats, a priestess of Ishtar. They took the road and set out on the journey. After three days, they reached their destination. The hunter and the priestess sat down to wait. 
One day and a uh, one day and a second, they sat by the waterhole. Then the herd arrived at the waterhole. The beasts came and quenched their thirst, and so did Enkidu, child of the mountains. That's wild man. With the gazelles, he gr he grazed on grass. With the herd, he rushed to drink. With the beasts, he quenched his thirst. Sam Hat, the uh, the the priestess of Ishtar, saw him, the man of the wild. This brute born in the wasteland's womb. There he is, Shamhat. Bare your breasts and spread your legs. Work your charm. I know that may be a bit vivid, but this is a Christmas episode, so we're just being true to the concept. Be brave and smell his sense. He will see you and run to you. Throw off your clothes and bring him down. Show this wild man what women can do, and his lust will wrap him around your body. Then he will abandon the herd of his youth. The Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet 1. Not just any woman, either. She was a priestess of Ishtar, connecting us with Semiramis and the cult of Nimrod worship, while ultimately embodying the prototype of a siren. Their intercourse was an initiation. The twist to this narrative happens rather early on, seeing as how a wrestling match between Gilgamesh and the wild man quickly succumbs to a homoerotic love affair. In this way, Gilgamesh was capable of vexing the Elohim. What what might the writers have been trying to convey exactly? Androgyny is my best guess, in a way. A restored union between Gilgamesh, the post-Diluvian giant, and Gilgamesh, the pre-Diluvian wild man. Their quest, by the way, was immortality. In the end, Enkidu died, and Gilgamesh tracked down the only two humans who had ever gained immortality, Yutnapishtim uh, and his wife. We quickly learned that Yutnapishtim and his wife had built a boat in an earlier generation. Being the sole survivors of the flood meant that all humans had descended from them. What else might the writers also be getting at then? Immortality belonged to two souls, and Gilgamesh wasn't one of them. No, Gilgamesh, the first Gilgamesh, had died on the day of the deluge, but these two had managed to escape the floodwater, proving their worth. Not very Nimrod of Gilgamesh to lead the world in pursuit of immortality. But then, oh, I'm sorry, let me repeat that again. How very, not very, how, it's getting late, people. How very Nimrod of Gilgamesh to lead the world in pursuit of immortality, but then snub the very pathway of righteousness, which promises to bring it about in the first place, which Noah and his wife uh, received. I believe I may have found the origin of the wild men. Their aboriginal tale derives from Sumerian tablets, which practically nobody has read before or are capable of reading for that matter, which would explain why they show up so often in Mesopotamian stories. Ever hear about the lost book of Enki? Yeah, me neither, until rather recently. We're once more presented with the Watcher story, as per the Anunnaki, but with another familiar twist this time around. It's none other than the ancient alien story that so many uh, were hoping for extraterrestrial beings, or rather the Anunnaki, arrive from Nibiru to seed life upon the earth, ultimately to create humans in their image. I'm not saying they're aliens, but if I'm reading this right, then they're aliens. Not that I'm, but not that I'm saying they're aliens, though, just the book is. And this is what it reads. This is kind of a lengthy text, but uh, we're almost to the end. A solution is possible, Inky was saying. Let us create a Lulu. There it is again. A primitive worker, the hardship work uh, to take over. Let the being, the toil of the Anunnaki carry on his back. Astounded were the besieged leaders, speechless indeed they were, 
Whoever heard of a being of fresh created, a worker of the Anunnaki's work can do. Just context here. This is in Enoch terms. This is the watchers. They're standing around and they're discussing, let's make creatures in our own image. They summon Nima, who one who of healing and succor was much knowing. Enki's words to her, they repeated, whoever of such a thing heard, they her, they her asked, the task is unheard of. She to Enki said, all beings from a seed have descended. Okay, whoever translated this was not a poet, all right? Just, I'm sure it's, it's more gracefully written than this. All beings from a seed have des descended. One being from another over aeons did develop. None from nothing ever came. How right you are, my sister, Enki said, smiling. A secret of the Abzu let me to you all reveal. The being that we need, it already exists. All that we have to do is put on it the mark of our essence, thereby a Lulu. So that's like the uh, Mesopotamian uh, Semitic kind of word for like, a, a, you know, a demon, a spirit. A primitive worker shall be created. So did Enki to them say. Basically, again, in Enochian terms, a terrestrial Ruach. Let us hereby a decision make, a blessing to my plan give, to create a primitive worker by the mark of our essence to fashion him. So was Enki to the leader saying, that being that we need, it already exists. Thus did Enki to them a secret of the Abzu reveal. Now, the part I want you to pay attention to is these last couple paragraphs. With astonishment did the other leaders Inky's words hear, but the words they were by the words they were fascinated. Creatures in the Abzu there are, Inky was saying, and here it is, that walk erect on two legs, their forelegs they use as arms, with hands they are provided. Among the animals of the steep they live, they know not dressing in garments. They eat plants with their mouths, they drink water from lake and ditch, shaggy with hair is their whole body. Their head, hair is like a lion's. With gazelles they jostle, with teeming creatures in the water as they delight. The leaders to Enki's words with amazement listened. No creature like this has ever in the Eden been seen. Enlil, disbelieving, said aeons ago on Niburu, our predecessors like that might have been. Ninma was saying, it is a being, not a creature. Ninma was saying, to behold, it must be a thrill. To the house of life, Inky led them. When I wrote this down, I did not... Man, this is like hard to read out loud, this passage. In strong cages, there were some of the beings. At the sight of Inky and the others, they jumped up with fist on the cage bars. They were beating. They were grunting and snorting. No words were they speaking, male and female, they are. Inky was saying, malehoods and femalehoods they have, like us, from Nibiru coming, they are procreating. The, book, the lost book of Inky. And so there you have it. The ancient alien's explanation for things has just been offered by the storytellers of old, but the added implication is that evolution is now involved. That fact seems most evident when Inky claims one being developed from another over the aeons. The Anunnaki made men out of monkeys, but in, before Anyone goes ape crazy on me and begins flinging cage poo or slapping me with a banana peel. Just stop and ponder the spiritual narrative from the perspective of our controllers. I am speaking now of our spiritual controllers, the Anunnaki watchers, the dark ones. Darwinian evolution developed by our post-mud flood controllers, the children of the seed of the serpent. 
but conveniently only after the Anunnaki Watchers were released from the Earth. In this way, the story of their children, rather than the children of Yahuwah, were being rehearsed all over again. And we were all told that we had descended from them. Their creations were referred to by them as primitive creations. They also called them the Lulu, and what does that remind you of? A Lilu, of course. Have you forgotten already? Lilu is a masculine Akkadian word for a Ruach and is related to Alu demon. The Anunnaki Watchers were creating Ruachoth spirit entities with the intent that their purpose might be better served upon the earth. Our very first meeting with them has all the markings of a Sasquatch, or as I've already mentioned, the Wild Man, which brings us right back around to the Book of the Giants again. Like Enkidu after him, Gilgamesh was specifically created with the intent of serving his parents' purposes. And that is that concludes that. Hopefully you guys are still hanging in here with me. Um, I had a lot more I wanted to cover. I wanted to cover Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he, you know, he becoming a wild man, uh, which ties into the spirit of Nimrod. Um, and also going over books, uh, passages in the, um, uh, the Colburn Bible about uh, the wild man, how he could appear and disappear as a spiritual creature. Um, fascinating research, but I think I covered a lot. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I am, um, I survived that somehow. I'm spent. And uh, the defense rests. I hand it over to the jury. Let me know your thoughts. Wow. So that was, I have some feedback. That was very, very eye opening. It was, um, I'll say this I've studied about the history of Saturnalia and learned about like Nimrod before, but just the way you, you put it together, tied it all together, that it's all really related and, and how, I mean, just knowing that he was Saturn before and then it's called Saturnalia. Like this is the first time I realized that and just seeing how it's really not, I don't know, just, just there was like a disconnect in my brain, but this just tied it all together. There's so much info there. I think I'm going to have to go back and read your paper again, just so I can kind of understand it better. But um, one question I do have is about Semiramis and how she became Lilith. Um, and maybe if I read it again, I might make more sense, but how, um, I thought Lilith, and I don't know if this is true either, if this is just from Legend of the Jews or where this is from, but I thought she was said to have been around from the time that Adam was created. So how would Semiramis have become Lilith, if you can kind of clarify or add to that a little more? Yeah, that's a really good question. I had the same question myself. So uh, what Mary was referring to, the now the Legends of the Jews, as you guys know, is is sourcing like the guy who wrote it uh lewis uh ginsburg uh he he's not i don't think he's making any of this information up he's basically sourcing uh many different books everything from jasher first second enoch uh, talmudic literature all sorts of stuff and he's pulling out information on how lilith was um you know adam's first wife she rejected him um, she became the mother of demons. She started giving birth to demons. And, um, and then in this passage in the book of the two pearls, uh, so I, and I've looked at this, I'm not quite sure where they're getting the idea from exactly. I don't know what the, the first, I've yet to find any, um, uh, 
I have found a little bit of Talmudic information that mentions Lilith, but not her origin. So I'm not actually sure where he's getting that from. Um, what I did point out in here is that Semiramis, uh, according to the Book of the Two Pearls, did become Lilith, which I find highly fascinating. Um, there's probably a lot more to that. I didn't really get into the whole Lilith thing here, but what the writer is definitely saying uh, is that Semiramis still lives uh, in the spiritual sense. Uh, that you know she is still a force to be reckoned with, um, and I, you know I, I think a lot of people they don't really think about that you know about Nimrod and Semiramis that uh, their spirit is very well uh, maybe attached to the spirit of Christmas um, that everybody uh, is attracted to. Uh, that's a, actually a pretty terrifying thought. Um, so, hi. This may be a little off the wall, but. It occurred to me, I've heard the name St. Germain come up over the ages, and these entities seem to span over thousands or thousands of years. I wonder if there's any link to the St. Germain figure with Gilgamesh and the rest. That's an excellent uh, observation, thought, question, and maybe somebody else has thoughts on that. I have no thought on that at present, but yeah, I mean, I mean... In terms of Saint Germain, I'm obviously I I know about this idea that you know he's cropped up all throughout history, and that is a really fascinating thought. Now they think about it. it's like this idea that he keeps becoming I don't know if you want to use the word reincarnated, but he keeps coming back as these different historical people that um, are kind of helping move society along, um, you know, with musically or you know different sciences and so on and so forth. Um, I would, if rather than Nimrod, if I had to just guess, and I'm just making this up at this point, I don't, uh, hopefully you guys, I hope one thing that you guys can at least appreciate with what I try to present to you guys. Now I could be wrong. I could be wrong about everything, but what I'm trying not to do is just make stuff up. I'm trying to show you, okay, here is the source material and this is what these people, these ancients said in these books, okay? Um, and that's where, what is informing my decisions. I'm not just making this stuff up. But if I had to attach a historical person to St. Germain, I would throw ham. I, if you guys come back next week, I have a whole presentation on ham and who he was. And uh, that guy was an interesting character. Um, it sounds very much like a, a Zoroaster kind of... Um, um, individual to me, but anyways. On the topic of Lilith and Semiramis being kind of the same figure, if if I understood correctly what you were asserting there, Noel, and how Esau essentially made a covenant with her, Am I, did I understand that right? Well, so here's what we know about Tammuz. Tammuz was killed um, by a wild boar. But that wild boar that killed Tammuz was uh, mostly tied in spiritually to the fact that Semiramis made a deal in the afterworld uh, to live, uh, you know, an immortal life, uh, which means that she it had to be a life for a life. And so she found that the only person that was worthy was her own son, who was also her lover, her husband. And so she had him killed, being the, you know, the black widow praying mantis that she was, a lovely woman. Uh, and so 
what's interesting about Jasher is as I was, you know, the very book that people are telling me to toss out, when you line it up with the Nimrod uh, mythology, it's very interesting that there's a lot of stories that I'm like, they, they just, they parallel each other. Um, and so Esau, you know, you read that he, um, he did a few things on the day he killed Nimrod. One was that he denied the world to come. And that's clearly speaking of uh, Yahuwah um, and his kingdom. Uh, he uh, had intercourse with a betrothed woman. He uh, had strange worship. So now we're including probably, you know, one thing that would happen with a lot of this is you would have, uh, particularly in the Semiramis Ishtar uh, religion, is you would have uh, prostitute uh, worship. Uh, you would have sexual intercourse uh, with, a, with a priestess uh, to take part in the ceremony of reincarnation, rebirth, immortality, so on and so forth. You, you see one of these problems that keep cropping up with Christianity, where they're like, you know, keep out of the, 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 the pagan temples and being with these prostitutes because you're making covenant with another god. Um, and, and so it seems like whatever he was doing with these other sins, it, it was I, I'm putting forth the idea that the strange worship, the idol worship, is connected with the intercourse and the killing of Nimrod, that they're all tied together. Um, if, I mean, clearly, uh, it says in Jasher that he killed Nimrod, right? So we're not making that up. Saw killed Nimrod. Well, again, you take it back as, is, well, Samiramis had Nimrod killed. So um, if this is Tammuz, which I believe it is, she had him killed. So you just you just put those pieces together and you can kind of see that um, wh one thing that's interesting about Esau, too, um, and I'll be talking about this next week. I've talked about it in the past is that Esau is uh, connected uh, in, in a lot of literature with the transition from Nimrod's kingdom to Rome. Esau is responsible uh, not just for the Edomites, uh, but actually establishing Rome. So it's a really interesting transition that's happening there. Um, almost like he was blessed in a way by the gods, you know, not Yahuwah, but the gods, uh, in destroying one kingdom, building up another. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to the story. I think there's a lot more to it than just, you know, he's in the woods and he's hanging out in the woods and he jumps out of a bush and kills Nimrod and runs off. I think there's a lot more to it. I agree. And I, I was asking in regards to the connection there because, as you were saying, and as we know, Esau founds the the Edomites in Isaiah 34 there's prophecy regarding what happens to the Edomites and that's the one place that we find Lilith mentioned in the Bible and it it's here Isaiah 34 12 through 17 and it says um I don't think the name is in this translation but it says in verse 14 wildcats shall meet with desert beasts satyrs shall call to one another there shall the lilith repose and find for herself a place to rest there the hoot owl shall nest and lay eggs hatch them out and gather them in her shadow so it's like there's this connection between you know lilith or semiramis and edom and the prophecy coming about with what esau put down and there's this egg laying reference here with the offspring of, you know, that covenant. I just thought that was interesting. Well, also in this, yeah, and you're right, this translation, some will, um, some say Lilith, and there's a debate on that word. 
Uh, I think it's what the screeching owl um, is where it comes from. But if you look in here, it also talks about the, the, the satyr. Well, what is that exactly? And um, th there's way more to this here. I, the, the satyr is, is, is ham. Um, it's pan. And um, I think that there was a covenant cut with pan. I'm going to be talking about this next week. Um, because pan is also attributed with, with Esau for the foundation of Rome. And I'm going to be showing you guys why Pan is Ham. And Ham and Nimrod hated each other. Yes, he's his grandson, but Ham was going around usurping thrones and putting himself and his children on there. Nimrod was doing the same thing. And so they found themselves in competition uh, magically as well. They were performing a lot of the same sex magic, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, immortal rights and all these kind of things. And there was a competition to see who could create the, the greater mystery religion that would be carried down through the years. So butting of heads. And there is a connection with, um, with Esau and, and killing Nimrod and uh, Ham also being a part of that blessing or the, the Pan character. So there's so much here. Thank you for bringing that up. I um, that's a great. That's a good passage. I'll have to make sure next week to present a <laughs> a passage that that shows Lilith in there. Does anybody else have any thoughts? Yeah, I have some. Hey. First, I would just want to say thank you for doing this. Um, it really reaffirms for me about not celebrating Christmas. It just, you know, at the time when we're just so alone and our families have yelled and yelled at us and it's, it's just a very hard time for some of us because we've given up the way that we used to follow. And I hate to say, I taught my daughters to follow that way of celebrating Christmas and getting their gifts under a tree. And, oh, it's just so terrible of this deception. And um, I just want to say thank you because as you're walking this walk, you get... Um, questioning whether you're doing the right thing and uh, this paper just really reaffirms that we are doing the right thing so I just want to say thank you for that and the second thing is I think it's just really funny that for Easter and Christmas a lot of people eat ham and that is what killed their gods and um and maybe that's a way of trying to get rid of the pigs. I don't know. It's just really, I just find that as a funny correlation. And then there was something about you said, and I think something started, but they started it on the first full moon after the equinox, the spring equinox, which as a full moon believer, which I am, I just find that really interesting that those two things line up and uh i'm gonna have to look at that again thank you for that in the paper and um 
I have to say your my favorite statement in the paper was it's like the Smithsonian truck backing up to a dig site. I just love your sense of humor and I just want to say thank you so much for what you do. Well, thank you, Nikki. Yeah, I I I picked up obviously on the the uh the full moon thing too. I thought that was interesting and um trying to not to divert the conversation to uh moon talk um but if you guys know like the calendar issue just is the one thing i could look at all this stuff i could look at all these different issues and i could i could dig into this stuff and, and i don't lose my mind but the calendar issue you talk about a paradox i i feel like i can look through history and i could see proof of both um you know, all the different views, all the calendar views. I feel like they're all there. And it's hard for me to, to dig and ascertain what is the truth there. But uh, that's a whole nother thing right there. Um, uh, someone was going to say something. Someone else was going to jump in. I had a question. Go for it. Uh, early, uh, second time today, shalom, y'all. Second time today, I heard the phrase, Cain survived the flood. And it uh, struck me, and uh, you had made mention of a term, I can't remember what it was called, uh, for how he might have uh, walked as a uh, walking dead or a uh, demonic spirit after that. And I was wondering if you could uh, elucidate on that a little more, because I'd like to research that topic a little more. I'm in line with, if he did survive, it was as a spirit. The reason I'm saying this, uh, to qualify it, is I know that uh, Cain built uh, the first city, named it Enoch, and I had been following the teachings of Kuria Mao Ahau, who's a very well-cited and researched uh, uh, on uh, YouTuber, and he was talking about Teotihuacan is actually named the city of Enoch, and that Quetzalcoatl, or the winged serpent, or the seraphim, is uh or the land of Amaruka is also the winged serpent that that might have been uh the original city and uh that kind of fascinates me and I was uh had been linking that together in some of my research but uh I had uh not ever considered that uh Cain could have or he might have uh what I'm considering become a shapeshifter and uh, that's uh, or assuming uh, other uh, bodies and forms. And that's how he uh, was able to uh, uh, mentor uh, Nimrod, as it were. What do you think about that? So uh, before I answer really quickly, uh, what what's where was the city uh, you you said really quickly that King built. Where was that uh, geographically? You think? Oh, that's in uh, uh, Mexico, Teotihuacan, where all okay. of the original pyramids are. Okay. So, um, all right. So the the Book of Enoch uh, refers to it as a terrestrial ruachoth. That's ruachoth means, or the terrestrial ruach. Uh, that means spirit. Ruachoth is plural. So a uh, terrestrial is earth, right? An earthly spirit. Uh, what that means is, is that uh, there are two classifications of spirits according to Enoch and similar literature like uh, Baruch and so on and so forth. Um, 
either you're a earthborn spirit or a heaven, uh, heavenly spirit. And so Yahuwah the Most High Elohim is called the father of spirits or the father of Ruachoth, which means that he created all spirits up in heaven. And then, you know, through the ages, the different spirits, they are born into human bodies. Well, what the Watchers did is they, super, they superseded that and they created their own spirits, uh, terrestrial Ruachoth or earthborn spirits uh, that did not come from heaven. Yahuwah's like, yeah, I'm not putting spirits in those bodies. Um, and so when the flood waters came or when the, the when these giants uh, were killed off during the war of the titans whenever you want to pit that um they their spirits they did not go back to the father because they did not originate from the father nor did he set up any system in sheol where these spirits would go to so they wandered the earth they are the demons all right so the demons that inhabit people today are the giants of old. Most people don't put that together. But the fifi fofam the giants, the, the ogres of the past, those are the demons. Now, with Cain, um, he wasn't just a child of, of a watcher. He was a child, well, uh, I believe, I, I actually do believe Hus, uh, the serpent is a watcher. Uh, he is a seraphim angel, um, also known as Azazel. Uh, so Cain is the son of Hasatan which means that he too is a, uh, a terrestrial Ruachoth. Meaning when Cain died, which Cain is documented as dying in uh, the book of Jasher and where else? What other book? It, uh, is it Jubilees? Doesn't matter. Uh, when he is killed, uh, he, um, he became, you know, he did not return to heaven. He didn't go to Sheol. He would have remained on the earth, which means after the flood, he is still, he would still be on the earth if that makes sense. So Cain, yes, being the first master Mahon, the first master Mason, he would have been instructing um, others. He, maybe he became a Satan. I don't know. I don't know the, the, the history of all the Satans. Who knows what this guy has done? So in the same sense, that means Nimrod would have still been on the earth um, and so on and so forth. Hopefully that answered your question. Thank you. That was good clarification. I concur with most of that. Some of that is what I knew. Had you heard anything about uh, Teotihuacan uh, as being uh, the city of Enoch? No, I, I haven't. Have you heard of Kuriamau Ahau? He is as no. well-sighted as you or, uh, or Zen in uh, his research. And he concentrates mostly on uh, tribes in uh, Amaruka. No, I think that's really fascinating uh, research, and um, I I have never considered Mexico as the or Central or South America as as a potential location for uh, the city the of Enoch that Cain built. So that's thank you for bringing that up. He has also a lot of uh, research on uh, the lost tribes of uh, the Hebrews in the Americas. You good? Thank you. But you guys know like, that wears me out going through that whole presentation. So um, if you guys um, have any other questions, any thoughts, throw them out there. I'll be glad to 
listen or discuss or answer. If not, we can, I'll give you guys a couple more minutes to think of something and then we can close shop. Connection between Madonna. Um, do you see some kind of um, indwelling spirit there or just like a, a willing kind of? Yeah, I, 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 I think I see what you're asking. Crazy I, person. Or or you think like there's a spirit of Lilith there? Oh well, um I I wasn't implying that she's literally the 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 spirit of Semiramis or Lilith. Uh, I don't know. I don't know who inhabits her. Um but I, I probably should have clarified that better when saying it was the same thing. Is well we get the Madonna and the child, right? So this would go into a lot of the research that was put forward in the mid 1800s called the two Babylons. Uh, I can't remember the name of the writer uh, at this moment in time. Some of you will know off the top of your head. Uh, he put together that the, uh, the Roman Catholic church was basically taking the Nimrod Semiramis uh, Tammuz story and incorporating it into the religion and having people worship Nimrod. And um, we, we saw the same thing in the book, uh, the book of the two pearls where Shem is prophesying that these scribes and monks and bishops would come forward and they would have people uh, think that they're worshiping uh, the savior Messiah. When in fact that they were actually worshiping Nimrod, um, which was, pretty you know crazy to read that um the first time i read that and so the idea of i mean she's called the she's called madonna as in the madonna she's making a connection for us um as to you know what the, what the madonna really is right it's the whore of babylon i mean that, that describes madonna pretty well i i don't maybe someone's going to listen to that and get insulted but i <laughs> It's kind of hard to to um, to uh, uh, disagree with that. So that's that's she's basically the 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 um, the model of Semiramis. I could see that definitely, and in the way that they have attempted to make her seem like she's de aging over the years, kind of points to the whole um, seeking immortalization that Semiramis was after. Yeah, if you want to call that de-aging, she's almost more like in the alien stage of her uh, plastic surgery. Uh, she's uh, like, I'm not trying to make fun of her. I mean, but her, it, it's hard for me to look at. Something happened in the last few years with Madonna. It's hard to look at her modern pictures. Um, I wish she would just Agreed. age gracefully. <laughs> I wish she would just age gracefully. She would look way more beautiful if she just let the wrinkles come in, but whatever. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so the idea with the, now I just want to be clear to everyone that there is nothing shameful about uh, Mary, uh, Miriam, uh, the mother of Yeshua, uh, Yeshua having a baby in her arms or the Immaculate Conception. But the idea is, is that uh, the, the Catholic Church also interestingly calls uh, Mary the Queen of Heaven, which is Semiramis's title. Mary is nowhere called the Queen of Heaven in Scripture. And so they're very cleverly masking. Uh, they're putting these huge idols of her everywhere, having people pray to her and baby Jesus. And it's, um, 
it's very cleverly being masked by the Nimrod Tammuz storyline. So that's where I was making the, the Madonna. Uh, 